Welcome back to Let's Get Haunted with your hosts, Nat Strawn and Allie. Welcome back, guys, to episode 133 of Let's Get Haunted. It is our season five premiere. It certainly is, and we have been awaiting this moment for a very long time. That's right, and if you're new to this show, you can go ahead and check out our show notes right now because you should know that the first 10 to 30 minutes is usually us just catching up with each other, interacting with our listeners, giving people updates, and taking care of housekeeping. So if that sounds like something that does not interest you and you would prefer to just jump right into the story that's in today's title, you can go ahead and expand those show notes and the very first sentence will say skip to and then a timestamp that you can skip to. And you are welcome to skip to it at any time. We can't tell you what that timestamp is because we won't know until we've finished catching up with each other. During the intro, we do personal hauntings where we just talk about haunted things that are going on in our personal lives and we thank our donors. That's right. And speaking of donors, I would love to give a big shout out to the haunties that donated to us in the month of December. We have Cassidy D, Jordan B, Kenny S, Christiana E, Anna J, Rachel G, Robert S, Anna K, Savannah W, Rachel V, Maria O, Sam V, Paying Urban, Malik, Vicky, Mariah and John, Natalie G, Elena B, Casilda from Australia, Kinley, Anonymous, Michael, Madison Emily W, Malik again, Alienation, and Brianne M. Thank you all so, so much for donating. Your donation means a lot to us, whether big or small. And I would like to go ahead and thank Malik and Peter Barker, Jim H., Gentry B, Curie S, Skylar L, Alicia J, Kathy G, Amber A, October Noir V, Camry G, Lindsay L, Kathy G, PM, Rebecca M, Haley Sydney and Katie D, Brandy B, Mackenzie K, Pete M, Camry G again, Anna K, Jessica M, Gentry B, Gentry B, Corey T, Casilda P, who donated and didn't hear her name. She contacted me and said, hey, I don't really care about a shout out. I just want to make sure that my donation went through because I haven't heard my name. And I wanted to let you know, Casilda, that it did go through and you're going to be shouted out so many times this month. Like you're going to never <laughs> donate again because you're going to be like, that was terrible to hear my name that many times. <laughs> Curie S., Camry G once again, Sarah W, Megan C, Alyssa S, who gave a very, very generous donation. Thank you so much, Alyssa. And Olivia M as well. Thank you guys so much. There were several people this month that I felt gave very generous donations. And I just wanted to say thank you guys so much. I know that we weren't recording this past month, but we still had to pay our rent. We still had to do all this stuff. We're always coming up with really expensive ideas like let's go shoot vlogs and uh, let's redo our website and all of this stuff. And you know what? It's just us. You know, it's what's that Drake song? It's like, it's all me. It's all me. (laughs) It's that for us. I don't know. You know that song where it's like stayed true? Yes. That's all me. Didn't conform. That's all me. I don't know the song. You guys know the song. That famous song by Drake, Didn't Conform, It's All Me. Every single song by Drake is like basically that. It's just like, yeah, I'm different than everyone else. And at the same time, I'm better than everyone else because I am different. And you being unique, especially if you're Drake, (laughs) is the best thing that you could do. And I'm Drake. 
And you know what? If you also feel like you're a unique individual better than everyone else and you would like to donate to our show, you can check out the show notes. There will be a link there to do so. And we have to quickly shout out, you guys, we are launching a Patreon on March 1st. So when that happens, you might be wondering what's going to be in their Patreon. And I'm here to tell you that we don't know. But what we do know is that we're going to record <laughs> some of these remote recorded episodes, like the episode that we're doing today. And you guys will be able to watch that. And I don't think we're going to edit the Patreon. So you guys are going to see us in our full, sloppy, terrible behavior that everyone wants to see, yeah. like the most chaos. You're going to have to join the Patreon if you want to get haunted that much. Yes, definitely agree. And so you can check out a link in the show notes. There's going to be a link in the show notes to our page, but it is not launched yet. So just be on the lookout for our launch date, which is tentatively March 1st. And when that happens, there's going to be a little bit of a buffer period where I will keep my Venmo and Kofi accounts open. But then eventually, once everyone has moved over to Patreon, I'm going to shut those down because it's way too complicated. So definitely make the move over to Patreon. Yeah, and we're so great to everyone who's been donating to us to make it so that now it is complicated to do the donations. Yes. This was a dream that we could have only hoped for when we began this in the bathroom floor of an apartment where a man shit on my porch. Yeah. <laughs> Truly uh, started from the bottom in a bathroom. Now we're here and we are remote recording. Natalia, do you want to explain where you are right now and what you were up to last night? I heard that you might be running on a couple hours of sleep. Yeah, so I'm in Georgia. I moved to Georgia, you guys. I moved to Atlanta. I am living in like a literal forest. There is a bald eagle that fishes in a lake in my backyard. I got deer. There is a possum that lives under my house that I feed routinely. That is a fact, and nobody in my house likes that I am doing that. They're all telling <laughs> me to stop, but I will not. And that possum has grown a lot. If you would like to keep up with that storyline, you can follow me on Instagram and I will post random animals. I also bought a bunch of mealworms that are dried from Wild Bird Seed Unlimited, which I joined their special member club. So I'm balling out <laughs> now. And I've been throwing that bird seed all over this place. All these little critters that live out here, I want them to come to my house. I hear people at the grocery store, they're like, oh, the deer come in my yard and it eats my grass and it takes my bulbs and everything. And I'm like, what the fuck do you plant in your yard so I can plant that so the deer will come and I can watch them eat it? <laughs> yeah, and my voice might sound really hoarse right now because I also got a job. Can you believe it? I got a regular W-9 job. Those of you who don't live in America, a W-9 is a tax form that you fill out. The rest of my life, I was a Pilates instructor, so I did 1099, which is an independent contractor. Now, this is very fun information that everyone is really excited to hear, so you're welcome. W-9 is for self-employed people. Are you self-employed? No. At this new job? Wait, I thought a W-9 is regular. W-4. W-9 is for people who are self-employed. Oh, maybe it's not a W-9 then. I don't know, guys. Point is, is that I don't know a lot about taxes and I have a job now. <gasps> I am working as a bottle service girl at a popular lounge slash club in Atlanta. So I am running on very little sleep because I don't get home until like 4 a.m. and then I need to eat something because the other thing that happens is when you're working as a bottle service girl, everyone wants you to drink with them. Now you're working for tips, right? So you're not just going to be like, I hate this job. Like, I don't want to drink with you, whatever. So if they're like, oh, like, let's take shots together. You're like, 
yeah, let's take shots. I'll pour all of them. This is great. Let's take a picture. I love this. You know what I mean? So um, I... I'm like pushing it to the limit, but you know what? I'm, I'm proud of myself for having this job. I work with like a lot of cool girls. They're a lot younger than me and it provides for so much haunted material for our podcast. I feel like I'm very, very excited for you to be coming on the show week after week with haunted bottle girl stories. And I didn't mean to call you out about the W9, W4. I was actually genuinely interested if maybe bottle service girls like are their own LLC somehow like i don't know like like a dancer or something because i know dancers will have like their own um tax forms but if you were working for a different company then it would be w4 but i was actually just interested if like i don't know what the logistics are of that maybe that's not interesting to anyone else but i am actually genuinely interested let me tell you so the reason i thought it was a regular job w9 is because anytime i would have an acting job like if i did when i did like a samsung commercial or i worked for i don't know like budweiser like a normal brand they they would w9 me so i thought that was like a normal tax thing and a lot of my friends that work as actors in la will w9 as well so in my mind that was more more normal than 1099 but you know what i know you guys love learning about all this interesting tax we should you know what we should do Allie? On our Patreon, what if we just explain tax documents to people? I feel like people would really benefit and enjoy that. (laughs) I'll let you handle the W-9 and 1099, and I can talk to them about the W-4. And you know what, guys? Don't take any of our advice because maybe the IRS will come knocking at your door because you should have 1099 when you W-9. I don't know. We we only offer um, limited advice from what we have Googled and or experienced in our personal lives. And who is to say that that information is correct? But I know that some of you are going to be wondering why we are not recording in person this episode. And unfortunately, with scheduling, it just didn't work out. Natalia has told me that tentatively she's thinking of coming to LA in Mm -hmm. March, I believe. Is that correct? Yeah, I'm going to try for March. Stay tuned and keep on checking back to see the Patreon launching. Um, Like I said, March 1st, put it in your calendar, set seven alarms, write it on your forehead every morning so that when you wake up to wash your face, you see it in your mirror. Do what you got to do to remember that we are launching a Patreon because it is intimidating. We probably should have done this back in the very beginning, but we have just been DIYing this whole podcast and learning as we go. And now we are learning that, okay, it kind of makes sense why people have Patreons because it's a consistent monthly way for people to support the show and it's one centralized location where we can see exactly what we have earned and it also is a good way for us to interact with people who want to be interacted with. In an interest of just being transparent, which I feel like we have always done with you guys, whether you want us to or not, we didn't start a Patreon because we didn't want to let you guys down. I didn't want, and I know Allie didn't want to not be able to meet people's expectations because we both had this idea that a Patreon meant a lot of extra content. It's like, oh, you pay for a Patreon so you can like unlock what's ever behind this paywall. And so we thought, oh, we're going to have to do extra episodes or we're going to have to like put stuff on there that only people from Patreon can access, which we are planning on doing. Um, We're just going to record some listener stories and we're going to record some of these remote recordings and we'll record some stuff we do in the studio now that it's all set up. But also we realized, okay, like there's some people who consistently 
donate to us. And if we can just have them consistently donate to us on Patreon, it would be a lot easier for us. And we're so grateful to you guys. And we still want to reward you with extra content. I don't understand why anyone would want extra content because I am constantly gaslighting myself about our content not being ingestible. And actually, (laughs) literally, we I have influenced people into the hospital before. So you know what, but we're, we're doing it. If people want to be haunted, then who am I to stop them? I am a giver. I am a lover. I'm a bitch. I'm a mother. I'm a child. I'm a sinner. I'm a saint. (laughs) That's right. That's beautifully put. Beautifully put. Yes. And I know that people fear change. I fear change. So I could definitely sympathize, but I don't want people to think, oh, now they're doing this Patreon and like that's so annoying and um like whatever because it it probably will be because change is Mm -hmm. always a little bit annoying when it first Mm -hmm. happens but then we get used to it as a Mm -hmm. group and i think it's going to be so much better the current system we have is where you guys can choose to donate whenever you want whatever amount you want and in exchange you get a shout out and the goal of the patreon will be that not only do you get a shout out but you get something extra Right. right so i think that even though it's a change it's going to be a good change You know what friends do this February season um, right before Valentine's Day? Friends let each other in on a little secret known as the Valentine's Beard Hedger from our friends at Manscaped. Roses are red, violets are blue, and our friends at Manscaped have a gift for you. Breaking news, haunties, Manscaped are now selling beard products. That's right, the leaders in grooming are revolutionizing the men's hygiene game once again with the new Beard Hedger Pro Kit. It all starts with the Beard Hedger. This cordless trimmer has a rotary wheel with 20 hair cutting lengths, all with one guard, so no more messy drawers full of extra add-ons. You hear that, folks? No more messy drawers. Unlock your bearded confidence this Valentine's by sculpting your facial hair into whatever your partner desires. Even better, save 20% off and free shipping by going to manscaped.com and using code Let's Get Haunted. And our friends at Manscaped went ahead and sent us one of their Valentine's Beard Hedger Pro kits so that we could take a look, try it out, feel the products between our fingers, get to know them, really take them on a nice dinner date, call them again afterwards, let them know how we feel. And I'm telling you, these products are pretty fucking classy looking. I was not expecting this level of class. I know that Manscaped has high quality goods, but something about this kit really just got me thinking about Valentine's Day and romance. Oh, wow. This is beautiful. I am looking at a curated box that contains several items just beautifully put together. It looks like there's some beard conditioner and some beard balm. I see several bottles. Oh, you know what I like about this? There's brushes in there. And let me tell you about brushes because I am a horse girl and horse girls love brushes. And I am seeing some very nice brushes here. We have what looks like a short hair ooh, and a long toothed comb. These are absolutely beautiful. You guys, we all need to start our brush collection. It's, as Natalia said, beautifully curated, beautifully put together. Every item has its own space within this gift box. I really think it is a classy gift to give your bearded partner this holiday season. Listen to this ASMR as I unzip 
Yeah, it's beautiful. It looks like it's got a hard-sided case with a zipper there, and she's taking out a trimmer, and just super well done. Fits right in the palm of your hand. This looks really sleek. This is very nice. Black. And this Beard Hedger Pro Kit comes, as Natalia said, not only with this beautiful, sleek beard trimmer, not only with a double-sided toothed comb, not only with a beautiful brush, but it also comes with beard oil, beard shampoo, beard conditioner, and beard balm. This would be a great gift for a furry, to be honest. I really feel like Manscaped needs to tap into some more markets. So if you're listening to this and you're a furry, get it, get it, do a review, film an ASMR video in your fursuit, and let us know how you're feeling about it. Because from my perspective as a non-bearded individual, I really like this. I think it looks great. I like change a lot. Like, I feel like if you have the same facial hair all the time, it gets kind of boring. Like, I like it. Grow it out and then trim it and shape it and do something and then grow it out. And oh my God, you know what I love? I love a man with a mustache, a nice mustache, like a Tom Selleck, thick ass caterpillar on your upper lip mustache. And if you can trim one of those with this, then you're golden. And you know what I don't like? Let's avoid this. I don't like when people shave their beard right along their jawline so that they like look like they have like a spring-heeled jack beard. You really gotta make sure that you fade the jawline under just a little bit so it looks like more casual. And you can do that with this product. That's 20% off with free shipping at manscaped.com and use code Let's Get Haunted. Spice up V-Day this year with Manscaped Beard Hedger, one stroke, one guard, 20 lengths. All right, Natalia, are you ready to get into today's episode? I am ready to get into today's episode. I'm very excited to see what you prepared because you've been very stressed out over this. So let's Let's just get into it. That's right. Yeah, Natalia and I have been very stressed out about season five for some reason. We'll talk about it more and on a future episode. But if you enjoy this episode, go ahead and go to at Let's Get Haunted on Instagram and click on the photo dump for this episode, which will feature key images from today's topic and leave us a comment. Okay, Natalia. A wise man once said, only the dead have seen the end of war. This powerful aphorism is meant to simultaneously convey the futility of mass violence and humanity's predilection for war. It describes human warfare as a perpetual cycle where the victors and victims are not permanent, but simply temporary accolades that switch and change with the passing of time. The conqueror of today can just as easily become the conquered of tomorrow, because the hard truth is that war has never brought about peace. In this sense, we can say resoundingly that yes, only the dead have seen the end of war. But what happens when death is not the end? What happens when the souls of those killed in battle continue to mingle amongst the next generation's soldiers? What happens when the battlefield is not only littered with the fresh corpses of the recently fallen, but also with the listless, wandering spirits of those who fought and died on the exact same battlefield 10, 20, 50, or even thousands of years earlier. Today's story examines one such place where each generation's slain armies stack on top of each other like dominoes, 
resulting in a haunting as complex as its history. Wow. Part one, the heart of Asia. Landlocked at the crossroads of Central and South Asia lies the Islamic Emirate of Afghanistan. Referred to in textbooks as the heart of Asia, both its history and its terrain are tumultuous and complicated. Starting near its center, the austere Hindu Kush mountain range slices up through the country, cutting northward and continuing on into Pakistan. The name Hindu Kush is often translated to killer of Hindus, so named after the many Hindu Indians who perished while being trafficked through the mountains during the Central Asian slave trade. Afghanistan, unfortunately, is no stranger to death. As far back as 330 BC, Alexander the Great invaded the land that would later become Afghanistan as he sought to conquer Persia. Later in the 1200s, Genghis Khan and his soldiers would slaughter thousands of civilians in the cities of Kabul, Kandahar, and Jalalabad as they rode to victory while expanding the Mongol Empire. In the modern Afghan province of Helmand, an uprising by the townsfolk revolting against the brutality of the Mongol army would result in unspeakable horrors. Genghis Khan's own son would order his men to kill all male inhabitants of the region before raping, enslaving, and selling off the women. Evidence of the presence of these two infamous warlords, Alexander the Great and Genghis Khan, can still be found in the country today. In the village of Kalat, for example, a castle fortress called the Bala Hizar has towered over the town since Alexander the Great himself ordered it to be built 2,000 years ago. According to reporting by NPR, since its construction, nearly every passing or invading army has used this fortress for their own. The British, the Persians, the Taliban, and the Americans, just to name a few. While some of these historical sites are preserved or protected in some way, most are not due to the country's instability. This tragic reality has resulted in a strange phenomenon where new watchtowers, bunkers, and military headquarters are, in some cases, built atop the ruins and remains of not just one other superpower, but three or four or even five. I can say like Afghanistan, it, it has a certain energy to it. Like you, you have to go there to feel it. You are listening to a clip from an interview between myself and a veteran of the war in Afghanistan. I am a former Ford Observer 13 Fox from the uh, US Army. I was in an airborne unit. And so I joined officially in 2009, but I actually technically enlisted when I was 17 in 2008. For the purposes of this interview, we will simply be referring to her as B. I had like a really unique deployment. I just want to like caveat that right off the bat. Um, I was a part of uh, an airborne unit that had a special duty called the uh, Global Response Force, which means we were able to be deployed anywhere in the world within 12 hours. And when my battalion came up for that duty, we were given short orders to like deploy with special forces to augment them in Afghanistan. B explains the surreal reality of fighting in a country with such a rich and layered history. It's the crossroads of empires, and mm -hmm. it's like the graveyard of empires as well. And 
a great example is outside my last outpost. It was like the, the outpost we were building and right in front of us was a fighting positions the Russians built back in the 80s. And 100 meters in front of them was ruins from like Alexander the Great's time of like an old like mud brick fort. So it's like layers upon layers upon layers of like tragic history just coexisting within feet of each other. So to think that it won't have some kind of like lingering understanding of that is just, you, you can't, it, it's there. Deployed in 2011, B was in Afghanistan for just under a year, but she has many memories that illustrate just how complex the country's history has been and just how much that complexity has impacted its inhabitants. One time we were working with some local Afghan forces and like an old man came up with like an old rifle and it was literally like three different rifles sandwiched together and jerry-rigged together. And it was like a Russian rifle with an Italian rifle with like a British rifle. And it's like, you could just see the history everywhere you went. B's experience seems incredible, but perhaps what is more incredible is that the vision of ancient relics scattered haphazardly around the mountains and valleys of Afghanistan is not unique to one person. I didn't really get into deep learning, deep reading about history and nonfiction like I do now until I got out. So every once in a while you'd be on patrol or something and see a bombed out tank and someone would say that's a that's a Soviet tank. I'm like, oh yeah, the Mujahideen, the, the freedom fighters in Afghanistan. And pretty much anywhere if you scrape down two inches in the dirt, you'll find, you know, old rifle, expense shells, stuff like that. You are now listening to a clip from an interview between myself and Matt Parks. Uh, I'm Matt Parks. I'm from Wisconsin, born and raised, and uh, yeah, I'm 32. about that? Matt is a former Marine who also deployed to Afghanistan, although he arrived two years before B did in 2009. Uh, at 17, that's 2007 for me. I had a, had a really good life, like really easy life up to that point. And being a religious person myself, it was kind of like me talking to God saying, hey, thanks for the nice upbringing, but I need some hardship in my life or else I won't have much seasoning or character, whatever you want to call that. So that was the central bit of it. But like most 18, 17 year old kids, it's more about turning from a boy to a man and the military will do that. So that played a part too, if I'm being honest. Matt expresses what he describes as the disorientation experienced between the shift in going from training to deployment. I'm all about honesty, and I'll be honest and say that I tried to get out of boot camp as soon as I got in there. I went to the drill instructor and said, I got to get out of here. He said, too bad. You signed a contract, and you don't think anybody would go home right now if they had the chance. So the first deployment was to Afghanistan, Helmand Province, 2009, and it was right before Halloween, if I remember right. So the disorientation, like there's always that scene in the military movie where all the, the grunts are in the back of the truck or something talking about, you know, where are we going? Who are we fighting? No one knows. That's, that's mostly true, except we knew we were going to Afghanistan, so obviously. But the details, we didn't know. We, I didn't know personally where we were going in Afghanistan. I couldn't show you on a map, that sort of thing. So the anticipation was there, but there's so much confusion leading up to it. You're just disoriented in general. Right out of boot camp, you're bombarded with absolute nonsense, so you get used to nonsense. You're constantly <laughs> uncomfortable like beyond anything you could think of so that, okay, when you're in a bad situation, you can still function. Like, I think that's the whole idea. Though you have to be very big picture as a very young kid to understand that. We were in the Carolinas, went up to Canada, over to Germany, 
from Germany, we went to Kyrgyzstan, a place I never heard of until I went there. And then you fly down from there to a rear operating base, like a big main base in Afghanistan in the northern part. And then from there, you go fly out to the boonies in a two-prop helicopter, and that's where you are. That's your that's your main forward operating base, if that makes any sense. So it's, yeah, there's a there's a lot of travel. You're 13 hours on the first flight, and you're already kind of jet lagged, and then just keeps on going. And, and there's a difference. It's not just like a base is a base is a base. You know, if you're on foreign soil, it it's, feels different. It is that palpable, it's a, all your senses are picking up on something, basically, like the smell. Add on to that disorientation, what many describe as the feeling of being in a living museum, and you have a recipe for a surreal experience. Definitely feels like, I always call it the Bible with tractors and loudspeakers. It just felt like you were traveling back in time. Recalling her early days in Afghanistan, B also focuses on new and different smells around her. But whereas Matt focuses on agricultural smells. It's all poppy fields there. So you have the standard farm smell, but something in the soil, who knows it's different. B remembers a different kind of smell altogether. To fully understand what I'm about to talk about, the first outpost I was at was this place called Tapa Gurgan, which roughly translates to what's called Russian Hill. And Tapa Gurgan is the only hill in this massive valley. And it's a hill because it's an ancient burial mound. So like ancient burial mound on top of like a few hundred years ago on top of the bodies of the Russian soldiers who died in that valley back in the 80s. And the American Special Forces went into this valley and were like, that is where we're setting up our outposts. So they leveled off the top of the hill, put up some walls, put up a hard structure to live in and started running combat operations out of that. That's where when I showed up, I, I showed up there. And the first thing you notice when you get off the helicopter and you get there is the smell. It, it smells like death is like the best way to put it, but like not like death, old death, like stale death. And every like the hill is just like this fine dust. Like you probably heard it referenced before called moon dust because it's just so fine that you step in it and it leaves like a perfect footprint. Let's pause here. What do you think so far, Natalia? Wow, that is so interesting. Wow. I, you know, I love history because it's so, in its own way, like introspective, right? We really get to contemplate the uh, nature of mankind, as one would say. And this is something I think about a lot of the times when I'm by myself in the car, you know, is I'm like, is war fighting? Is that just programmed in our DNA, you know, like we we are just like this reptilian brain ancient species that has evolved from a place where we had to fight to survive and it was literally survival of the fittest. And is so is there just some sort of instinctual need for violence? Is there or not even violence or just conflict, you know? That that is just so visually validating to see that what B was talking about oh the past there's been a bunker here right and then but after that there was a conquered so there's another bunker here and now she's in a bunker and god it would just be so like so much existential crisis dread feeling thinking about that is just like am I just a cog in this machine of war that's never going to end until eventually we go extinct because some other species or some other planet or some other timeline takes over humanity. Yeah, I definitely agree. It's it's 
an empire comes and falls, an empire comes and falls. And it's just like you can see all of the remnants because since the country is unfortunately not stable right now, there's no way to preserve this stuff. So it's just like a new superpower comes in and builds on top of it, which is like super interesting. I didn't know much about Afghanistan or the war in Afghanistan, to be honest with you, prior to doing this episode. And I was so fascinated. The idea that you can just walk outside and see the remains of a building from Alexander the Great and like artifacts from the Silk Road. And, you know, we'll talk a little bit more about some other superpowers that left behind um, different ruins in the country that you can still see today. But yeah, it really kind of puts it into perspective. Like nothing that we are doing is any different than what the you know, the last empire before us did, right? It's like this, like you said, is it just a never ending cycle? And that's one of the questions that I think we'll be exploring this episode. And I don't think there's really an answer. I think you could probably make a good argument any way you look at it. Um, but I thought it was an interesting concept to explore for sure. Yeah, I, that is interesting. Um, yeah, I, I have one small thing I can add to it. I don't know. Maybe it's interesting. So my mom is from Pakistan and she grew up right on the border, basically in the, in the mountains of that area. So in, at times would be in Afghanistan. And um, I was talking to her about our family history and she was telling me because my son's really tall and he's really big. He has really big feet. So everyone thinks he's going to be really tall. And I was like, you know, there's not really that many tall people on my mom's side of the family. And everyone corrected me at Christmas when I was with them. And they were like, actually, we had some really, really tall people. And my grandmother, now, I don't know if this is just a bad translation or not, but she said that there were people in our family that were like seven foot tall but they were all recruited to be warriors. So the, what would happen is, is like when um, a new power or a warlord or whatever would sweep through the mountains, all these tiny villages, towns, like where my mom's family lived, they would just come and gather up all of the biggest, strongest men and force them to go to war for them. So she was like, they all like basically died because they took them as like prisoners and made them fight but I don't know I just thought maybe I would add that here I don't know yeah no <laughs> so. I think it's relevant no I think it's definitely relevant and we're actually going to talk a tiny bit about Pakistan but I didn't go super in depth because I figured you would probably be a better person to do an episode on Pakistan's hauntings because of your mom growing up there because of your grandma growing up there so I'm leaving that to you for a future episode if you want to do that but yeah there's definitely some overlap here because India, Russia, and Iran, Pakistan, all of these countries are in very close proximity, yeah, in this area. Cool. I'm excited for this episode. Let's go. With this information, the question for the curious naturally becomes, why? Why has Afghanistan experienced what seems to be a disproportionate amount of rising and falling empires? The simple answer is that Afghanistan has long been lusted after for its wealth of natural resources. In an article published to the website of the United Nations, journalist Bijan Omrani describes this fact as follows, quote, Afghanistan can thank its geographical position for its wealth. It sits at the heart of Central Asia, at the meeting point of ancient trade routes known together as the Silk Road that go out to all parts of Asia. Some lead east to China, some north to the great cities of Bokhara, Samarkand, and Kiva, and then to the nomadic steppe, some southeast into India and others east into Iran, 
which then lead to the Mediterranean Sea and Europe. Goods wanting to pass between any of these places had to go through Afghanistan. And thus, Afghan cities strategically placed along these routes were able to benefit massively as places of mercantile exchange. Afghanistan's impact on world trade can be seen very far back in history. For example, the blue lapis lazuli stone in the famous funeral mask of the Egyptian pharaoh Tutankhamun was exported from Badakhshan in Afghanistan to Egypt in 1300 BC. Even before that, around 2500 BC, lapis lazuli was exported from Afghanistan to Iraq for the harps buried with the kings of the ancient city of Ur, some of which can now be seen in the British Museum. This shows how long the trade routes have been in operation and how far back they reach. As Afghanistan moved into the modern age, more valuable natural resources were found only making the conquest of its lands even more attractive to foreign invaders. Besides lapis lazuli and gemstones, Afghanistan also sits atop huge deposits of copper, iron, marble, talc, coal, lithium, chromite, cobalt, and gold. So as I said, the easy answer for why Afghanistan has experienced so much warfare is its resources. Okay, but resources are haunted, like copper can be haunted. Right? Like gold is haunted. Okay, sorry, continue. I just got really excited because I'm glad I'm glad you're getting excited. The complicated answer also takes into account world politics and geographic location. Part two, Afghanistan in the modern era. Wow, Ali, can we just all take a moment for a second to just acknowledge that we're doing like literally this is like an NPR episode of Let's Get Haunted. Oh my god, thank this you. This is like um this American life. Like you are really just you know taking a something that's quite controversial in my opinion to do an episode on and I think you're doing a beautiful job with it. So I'm going to oh, give wow. you thank praise you. because I know the Leo in you uh really needs compliments but doesn't know how to accept them. So there that's you go. That's very true. <laughs> thank you. Thank you very much this is why every leo needs a gemini because gemini's will just tell you how they see it and leos are like in a corner wanting so badly to be the center of attention but not knowing how so thank you i really appreciate it (laughs) part two afghanistan in the modern era The modern state of Afghanistan can be traced back to the 1700s with the establishment of the Durrani dynasty, an empire formed by Ahmad Shah Durrani. Durrani's reign is marked by his endeavors to conquer much of Central Asia and beyond. His efforts were largely successful and at one point the Afghan empire spanned from eastern Iran to northern India. After his slow and painful death from an infection on his face in 1772, Ahmad Shah Durrani would eventually be replaced by his son Timur. Timur would take his father's place after successfully beating back the efforts of multiple combatants who desired the throne, including his own brother. Dying around 20 years after his rise to power, his death would cause yet another succession crisis, with his sons waging war against each other as well. At this point in its history, Afghanistan was effectively divided into multiple smaller kingdoms, a fact underscored by the beginning of 70 years of bloody civil war as Afghanistan sought reunification, 
led by leader Dost Muhammad Khan. Dost Muhammad died in 1863, just weeks after his final campaign to unite Afghanistan, an event which tragically threw the country back into civil war as potential successors warred against each other for positions of power. During this new civil war, Afghanistan found itself unfortunately wedged geographically between the British Empire and the Russian Empire, two world powers locked in a series of military confrontations that would come to be known as the Great Game. From India, the British invaded Afghanistan, and from the north, Russia invaded. For a short period of time, the British established political influence over Afghanistan until they were finally pushed out during the Third Anglo-Afghan War. The country would now emerge as the independent kingdom of Afghanistan under the rule of Amanullah Khan, a monarchy lasting nearly 50 years. The last and final king of Afghanistan, Zahir Shah, served for 40 of those years, making him the longest-serving ruler of Afghanistan since the Durrani Empire. Zahir Shah began his reign in 1933 and began modernizing the country in the 1950s, culminating in the creation of a new constitution and a constitutional monarchy system. The years after World War II, the 50s, 60s, and early 70s, are described in a multitude of texts as the golden era of Afghanistan. A microcosm of this golden era is, in my opinion, most interestingly illuminated by the presence of the so-called Afghan Elvis, Ahmad Zahir, Afghanistan's first and biggest pop superstar who lived fast and died young during this exact era. Wow. Natalia, have you ever heard of this before? No, no, I've never heard of the Afghan Elvis, but I am very interested. Oh, we're going to take a look at him and just listen to a, a music clip. But I thought this was so interesting because for whatever reason, especially in the West, we really don't learn about Eastern nor Central Asian politics. Like we really don't know anything. We don't learn about the culture. We don't learn about like pop culture. And I think that the the fact that there was an Afghan Elvis during this era just shows that this was like the golden era of Afghanistan. Right. In an article for HistoryExtra.com, an Afghan woman named Mina recalls her time living in Afghanistan during the 1970s. Quote, Mina could not believe her luck when, as a teenager, she got a hold of a ticket to an Ahmad Zahir concert. She dressed in her best orange bell-bottom flares and a red flowery blouse and squeezed into a minibus with 20 or so sisters and cousins. Quote, we were clapping and dancing, she recalled. It was just amazing. Girls threw handkerchiefs on stage hoping he'd sign them and drank from a glass that he'd put down. The concert was in Kabul around 1976. At that time, many singing stars were performing in Afghanistan, but only one who moved with the music on stage and got the room screaming. Only one who mixed Afghan instruments such as rhubarb and harmonium with saxophone and electronic keyboards, trumpet with bongo drums. Unfortunately, this golden era would come crashing down in the familiar pattern of the rise and fall of the empires before it in the mid to late 1970s. King Zahir Shah left Afghanistan for London on the morning of June 25, 1973. In London, he underwent medical treatment of a hemorrhage in his eye following a facial injury he sustained. After treatment, he was flown to Italy to recuperate. 
While in Italy, King Zahir Shah's regime was overthrown in a coup by his own cousin and former Prime Minister Mohammad Daoud Khan, who established a single-party republic, ending more than 225 years of continuous monarchical government. Afghan Elvis incorporated his social concern and disgust in the violence of this coup in his music during the time. Quote, In April 1978, the good times came shuddering to a bloody halt when the Communist People's Democratic Party of Afghanistan seized power. A little over a year later, Ahmad Zahir was dead. His death sparked whispered conspiracy theories, as the car accident that supposedly killed the Afghan Elvis was never investigated. Many point to his political songs opposing the new establishment as a possible reason for his death. So, Natalia, I am going to send you a song by the Afghan Elvis. And I'm only going to play a couple seconds during the audio that our listeners are listening to because I don't want to get a copyright strike. But I'm also going to link it in the show notes because this music is like also like really good. Like it's kind of a bop. Like it's kind of iconic. Wow. I'm excited to hear it. But just when you were saying that all or, you know, going through the history of Afghanistan, I was really just thinking Game of Thrones. Like this is Game of Thrones, essentially. It's just, you know, the the chair that they sit on the Iron Throne. And it's just all of those dead people's swords. And it's just all stacked on top of each other. I feel like this is it. Okay, I'm listening to it. Okay, yeah, I see what you mean. I see what you mean, and I understand why he's called the Afghan Elvis. So in the video that I was just watching of him, he, you know, has that really cool, what is, what is it called? Like, it's kind of like a um, the hairstyle that Elvis had, sort of like, is it like called a pomodoro or something? Yeah, his like a koi for a pompadour. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. It's styled up and he has like luscious, amazing, thick, dark, beautiful hair. And then just also he's just a gorgeous person, right? Like like that olive glowing skin. And he's got um, that 70s style uh, suit where it's kind of like polyester and it's uh, it's really deep, a deep V. So you can see a lot of his chest. And he's just got this really like confident sort of playful vibe like Elvis had where he just sort of is really feeling the music and it's just infectious to watch right like you just want to kind of get up and dance too and so I can see how in um a place like Afghanistan where the culture is a little bit more conservative, how this person, much like Elvis in the 1950s in the United States, was sort of shaking up the social norms. And um, yeah, he's just cool. And I really liked that. I really liked that. That's a very cool little tidbit. You guys check those out. Uh, you can go to the link in the show notes, I'm guessing. Yeah. Okay. I'm so excited that you liked it. Yeah. It, it's so interesting. And especially because Um, And I'll probably post a clip of the video I just showed Natalia to our Instagram photo dump as well. But it's it honestly like gives me the chills when I was watching it because he not only is he like kind of pushing the envelope and being just like very cool and like um, maybe like a little bit provocative. But the songs that he's singing about are not just catchy. Uh, It features a lot of themes of like social justice and Um, during this time, this really dangerous coup is going on. And depending on which conspiracy theory you subscribe to, a lot of people in the country really feel like he was murdered for speaking out against this new shift in power. I believe that. I feel like that 
happens all the time in countries that are super stable. So if it's already an unstable country, then that just makes a lot of sense to me. Yeah. Yeah. And it's just, I mean, I think this whole story kind of has a lot of tragic not even undertones, but like overtones. Um, There's a lot of like really beautiful parts of Afghanistan, a lot of really beautiful parts of the culture. And there's a lot of interviews that I did in this episode that you guys are going to listen to where people really talk about like, oh my, like how friendly the people are, how rich the culture is, how amazing the food is. But then this whole time, it's like this perseverance in the face of adversity that none of us can even imagine. Like, can you imagine if California was just constantly being invaded and taken over by a new superpower like every couple of years or like a new government gets put in and then immediately there's a coup? Like, I can't even imagine what that would be like. And so the fact that people like Afghan Elvis are in the face of all of that, like sadness and violence and destruction are just like coming out and like, publicly being like this is who I am like let's get up let's dance let's like Mm -hmm. let's protest let's talk about this like and then dies for that Super brave yeah super brave and I also wanted to point out this really interesting coincidence that maybe means nothing but I thought it was interesting that in the um the part about two different fallen um leaders that I've talked about so far uh, in Afghanistan two of them both died from very like strange facial infections i noticed like one of them died from a facial infection did someone Mm -hmm. like throw something at their face or i don't get that or is that you know part of this conspiracy i guess that's like what that i that was weird because you said the first guy died from a painful infection to his face and then this guy also and so i'm like is this like I know back during this time period, some of the methods used to um, assassinate people would be like a micro amount of poison delivered to the face we've talked about in the MK Ultra episode. So I don't know if I'm just like putting on my 10 hat here. Um, well, I do know I'm putting on my 10 hat here and I'm making connections. I don't know if there's actually connections there or not, but I'm just being provocative because it gets the people going. No, I, I think when I was researching this, I had the same reaction as you where I was like, that's what a strange coincidence, like that it would be two facial infections. And the reality of a lot of the history of Afghanistan is that I was going to say, mate, I mean, the skeptics are going to be like, oh, well, they shave and they have really thick beards. So then, um, back in the the fifties, like the water was not clean so it was like very common to get a beard infection or whatever okay I'm just saying it so that they can't because look we covered it yes no and the thing is nobody at least in the various histories that I read nobody really comes out and says like what caused the initial infections other than quote a wound to the face in both cases so I mean, it could have been maybe a wound to the face, like you said something simple, maybe like shaving, or maybe it's a wound to the face, like while in battle, or maybe an IED explosion, depending on, um, you know, what sort of methods were being used against them, maybe shrapnel, we don't know, we don't really know. And I think you've talked about this before in past episodes, where history is written by the victors, right? So if somebody is wounded, fallen, and then gets taken over, Uh is the victor going to take the time to be like, oh yeah, this guy had a facial infection and it was because of X, Y, and Z? Or are they just going to be like, look, he was in the hospital and we took over? You know what's something really weird that this is jogging my memory? Um, 
is that in the episode we did on King Tutankhamun, there was a person who got an injury to their face, an infection from shaving yes. and died. Yes. Do you remember that? Yes, you're right. And now yes, I'm just I do. thinking everything's bullshit and there's no <laughs> such thing as shaving injuries and that these is, this is just all a cover up for something I don't know what it is yet. I guess I'll have to continue to listen to the episode to find out. This next piece of Afghanistan's history is best explained by NPR's Peabody award-winning podcast, Throughline, which I highly recommend that anyone who enjoys this episode immediately goes and listens to once this story is finished. In the episode of Throughline, entitled Afghanistan, The Rise of the Taliban, hosted by Rompton Arablui, the host remarks, quote, The Soviet Union stepped in to keep Afghanistan communist. They launched a full-scale military invasion of the country. Even though most analysts knew there were thousands of Soviet troops in Afghanistan, last week's coup d'etat caught most of them by surprise. Maybe it shouldn't have, because at least in hindsight, there were plenty of indications of what the Soviets were contemplating. In New Delhi, Bruce Dunning reports. It began one of the most brutal occupations of the 20th century, and on paper, one of the most uneven military matchups. On one side was the Soviet military, equipped with tanks and attack helicopters, and on the Afghan side was a loosely connected collection of Afghan militiamen called the Mujahideen, or those who fight in the way of God. Afghanistan, war in the Hindu Kush. Mujahideen lay in ambush in the strategic Salang Pass. Afghanistan has many ethnic groups, including Pashtuns, Tajiks, Uzbeks, Hazaras, Turkmens, and Baloks. In response to the Soviet invasion, many of these groups united under the cause of Islam and Afghan nationalism. Many believed that the Soviets, effectively an atheist state, wanted to get rid of the country's religion and tradition. So, for the Mujahideen, this wasn't just a religious war. It was a war for the survival of their nation and they fought with that sense of determination and desperation. Most understood the shock value of the ambush, relying on it as their basic tactic. Despite alleged dirty tactics of dropping bombs disguised as toys to intentionally maim Afghan children, and despite having superior weapons and more organized troops, the Soviet would eventually be forced to withdraw from Afghanistan in 1989. When they withdrew, they left abandoned equipment, vehicles, buildings, supplies, and tanks littering the Afghan countryside. Well, there was a subtle detail that, like I said, there were sandbags inside, inside the ring of sandbags and bunkers. There was a trench. Outside of both of that was razor wire, and outside of the razor wire was just a femur sitting out in the sun, a nice, long human femur. You are now listening to the voice of Matt Parks, a former Marine and veteran of the war in Afghanistan. And I'm not one to like, hey, what's the gossip on that? I just keep to myself for the most part. But other people asked and <laughs> I kind of crept up to the conversation and one guy who, nice as he was, I, th I think the leadership wanted to keep him up there because he was annoying or whatever. But he, he told us the story, or his version of the story. We're like, what's with all the bones, bud? What's, <laughs> what is this place? And he summed it up that, oh, this was a gravesite, and when the British were here, they tried to use it as an observation post, and they dug out, found human remains, 
and then asked the local sheiks to move the remains so they could make a better observation post. Again, we knew very little. We just knew there were bones right there and that people were buried there. Much like B described in her interview, Matt details seeing the remnants of not just weaponry, but also remains. He's not alone. Another Marine consulted for this episode who chooses to keep both their voice and their name anonymous told me that while out digging in the hot, sandy terrain, one of his fellow soldiers came across a broken, buried skeleton, still wearing an 80s-style Soviet helmet. Yeah, I can't imagine what that is like. I mean, war is one of those things that has obviously like a lot of drama just instilled into it because it is based in conflict and violence. So there are so many stories and narratives throughout Hollywood and in art and just in culture in general that talk about war. And I've read a lot of books about war, but it's it's just really like... You almost get desensitized to that, right? But the fact that we're just like desensitized to finding the dead just dumped unceremoniously throughout some hillside stumbled upon by a civilian or by someone else who is now serving for their country is like, it's just come out like, it's just, ah, oh, it's like living in a, I don't know, it feels like a movie, right? Like, it's just, it doesn't even feel like real life. No, totally. And Matt talks about just like how surreal it was. Like, he's he's out yeah. there, he's digging, He they're setting up these different bunkers, barriers, digging trenches, like setting up Hezco barriers, putting out razor wire, and you just come across mm -hmm. these bones of the previous soldiers that fought there. And it's very like surreal and as later we will learn when we listen to the rest of his interview like those t the things that they saw there like not just in combat but like digging and you find yeah like a femur bone or something which he talks about mm -hmm. it messes with you because you have to think like even in the moment if you're not right. focusing on it because you have a job to accomplish people that you're answering to people depending on you so you don't really have a lot of time to think about it after the fact when people come home right. um, from war that is one of the things that really messes with them because now they have a chance to reflect on all of the stuff that they saw right yeah it really makes you just question your own mortality like i said it's like existential questioning definitely there um because you're just looking at a, a lens like a mirror of what you're doing right now and seeing that it ended and yet did not solve anything you know exactly yeah totally Following Soviet withdrawal in 1989, infighting amongst different factions continued in the Republic. The Islamic fundamentalist Taliban controlled most of the country by 1996, but their Islamic emirate of Afghanistan received little international recognition. That is, until 2001. Following the terrorist attack on the World Trade Center on September 11, 2001, President George W. Bush declared war on the parties behind the attacks. Ultimately, the U.S. government sought to kill Osama bin Laden, leader of a terrorist organization called Al-Qaeda. The son of a wealthy Saudi businessman, bin Laden and Al-Qaeda found themselves hiding in the mountains, being protected or harbored by the Taliban. With the approval of Congress, Bush declared war and U.S. troops invaded Afghanistan, overthrowing the Taliban and marking the beginning of 20 years of war between U.S. forces and Taliban forces. 
In 2009, President Barack Obama held a conference where he announced renewed interest in Afghanistan, saying, quote, Today, I'm announcing a comprehensive new strategy for Afghanistan and Pakistan. We've consulted with the Afghan and Pakistani governments, with our partners and our NATO allies, and with other donors and international organizations. We've also worked closely with members of Congress here at home. And now I'd like to speak clearly and candidly to the American people. The situation is increasingly perilous. It's been more than seven years since the Taliban was removed from power, yet war rages on, and insurgents control parts of Afghanistan and Pakistan. Attacks against our troops, our NATO allies, and the Afghan government have risen steadily. And, most painfully, 2008 was the deadliest year of the war for American forces. Many people in the United States and many in partner countries that have sacrificed so much have a simple question. What is our purpose in Afghanistan? After so many years, they ask, why do our men and women still fight and die there? And they deserve a straightforward answer. So let me be clear. Al-Qaeda and its allies, the terrorists who planned and supported the 9-11 attacks, are in Pakistan and Afghanistan. Multiple intelligence estimates have warned that Al-Qaeda is actively planning attacks on the United States homeland from its safe haven in Pakistan. And if the Afghan government falls to the Taliban or allows Al-Qaeda to go unchallenged, that country will again be a base for terrorists who want to kill as many of our people as they possibly can. End quote. And with that, the U.S. government, under the direction of President Obama, sent an additional 30,000 troops into Afghanistan. And as Commander-in-Chief, I have determined that it is in our vital national interest to send an additional 30,000 U.S. troops to Afghanistan. After 18 months, our troops will begin to come home. These are the resources that we need to seize the initiative while building the Afghan capacity that can allow for a responsible transition of our forces out of Afghanistan. Thousands of American and British men, some still teenagers, would file into Afghanistan, some after only a few short months of training, where they would meet head-on with the horrors of war. Part 3. O.P. Rock Afghanistan is divided into 34 provinces, each one encompassing around 1,000 or more villages. The largest province by area can be found in the south of the country and is named Helmand. The center of opium production and a Taliban stronghold, international forces, mostly British, were sparsely stationed in Helmand until the spring of 2008. At this time, a battalion of U.S. Marines would arrive to support the British and an additional 11,000 Marines would pour in by 2009. This would be the first wave of President Obama's 21,000 troop surge into Afghanistan. The first wave of 11,000 Marines would be split up throughout the large region with different tasks, all playing different roles in hopes of securing the region before the Afghanistan presidential elections. So I was part of the uh, buildup in 2009 in southern Afghanistan. Uh, since that was traditionally the uh, heartland of Taliban control. Uh, it started originally with Helmand Province in Kandahar. Um, so when President Obama took office, uh, he ordered four Marine battalions, or three infantry battalions, and then an armored reconnaissance battalion, 
And yeah, with uh, 2nd Battalion, 8th Marines, you're part of that. You are now listening to the voice of C, a former Marine who was deployed during this surge. Um, so I'm a former Marine infantryman. I was a meritoriously promoted corporal, which means that I was promoted ahead of my peers. Uh, I was uh, deployed twice. I'm also a graduate of multiple different uh, military schools, such as Infantry Squad Leaders course, um, as well as Combat Coaches course combat hunter, and a couple medical courses as well. C tells me about what it was like finding out where he would be deployed to. I was about five months shy of my 19th birthday, so 18 and a half, when I enlisted, 22 and a half when I got out. Yeah, so when I was actually doing my workup to be deployed the first time, right up until prior to the deployment, we had all been told that we were going to Iraq. We were going to go, we were going to, go to Iraq, just like the deployment before, before I got into the unit, um, and we were going to go demil bases in Iraq for the pullout there. Um, then shortly before Christmas of 2008, uh, our battalion commander sat us down, um, came to our entire company, sat us down and said, guys, I've got good news and I've got bad news. And that's that you're going to Afghanistan. Damien Zolik is another such Marine that, like C, would be deployed to Afghanistan in this first surge. Uh, my name is Damien. Uh, I'm a former Marine Corps vet. I'm 35 years old, and I was in Iraq in 2007 and Afghanistan in 2009. Much like Matt and B described at the beginning of this episode, Damien tells me what it was like to step foot on Afghan soil for the first time. It's just a very, you know, old, ancient place. And, uh, you know, when you're coming from a modern world, you know, and then you go into a very austere environment like that you know it's like yeah it's like going back in time to me it was more surreal mm. like you know the feelings were more surreal you weren't the uneasiness really doesn't start for most of us anyways i would think to like you really once once you get into your ao so your area of operation like so your fob because that's where you'll be conducting like your combat patrols from so that's when you kind of know you're getting into the shit is, one, is one, once you get there. Like when you're on the main base, it, yeah, it, you know, it's just a surreal kind of vibe. It's not necessarily like a lot of those emotions don't really start until you leave the wires for the first time, you know. Every Marine I spoke with had one or more terrifying tales to tell me about their time spent in the war. But there is one group of Marines sent in this first troop surge under President Obama that would unintentionally gain notoriety for the paranormal encounters they endured over a period of 60 days in 2009. This group of men consisted of eight Marines who were given the task of relieving a small troop of British soldiers who had been stationed at an observation post, or OP, for a couple of months. This observation post was nicknamed OP Rock. Basically, if you have a group of people and you want to keep them safe. That's Matt again. And you want the main group to stay safe. You send out people away from the group to keep a lookout. And observation post is just a place where you can see a long ways off and give fair warning to whoever needs it. Damien, C, and Matt were all stationed at OP Rock during one time or another in Afghanistan. Damien describes to me the process of arriving to OP Rock for the first time. Afghanistan, when you left the wire, it was very different because I was part of that push in 09 that Obama did when he sent all those troops. And so, like, I remember we were on post in the FOB, and literally from when the sun came up, there was just, like, 
there's like one main road and that's it like one main road oh wow yeah and there was i mean there was cars and trucks and mopeds as far as i could see because everyone was getting out because they knew that we were pushing you know you know into uh their, their cities and towns i remember me and my buddy me me and my boy were on post and we and we looked at each other each other we're just like man like we are screwed like because obviously if anybody that's left there is uh the taliban right so if you see a whole population that are getting out of dodge they're leaving because they know you know it's about to be hell on earth there so yeah it was very intense it was very yeah it was very weird it was very very strange it's almost like um i don't know those nature scenes and nature documentaries where you'll see all of these birds and animals running out of the jungle because they know that something is coming their right, direction. Right, yeah, right, yeah. Like the tigers there, you know? Yeah, that's mm-hmm. that's what, yeah, that's exactly, yeah. I definitely felt like a deer, for sure, you know? Were you in a central base in Helmand province before transferring to the OP that we're gonna talk about? Well, okay, so that base was actually, like you could see OP, uh, from the main fob, you can okay. see it. So that fob was there to kind of like guard the flank, because there's like a little town to the left of the fob where like, uh, the you know the Brits were there before us, or the Welsh, I should say. That's what they were. They're part of the Welsh guard, and uh, they were there before us, and uh, they had taken a lot of contact there, and I think particularly from that town, and so that's why they they kind of used that as an open. OP and it was like, you know, it was really, I don't, I want to say it's about like 35, 40 feet tall. Hellman was in the valley. So like when people think of Afghanistan, they think of like the mountains and all that. We were like in a valley. So it was real flat. And so that outpost, you know, you, you could see a good ways out. So you could see if anybody was trying to come to attack the fob or plant IEDs or whatever, you know. So the FOB you said was about a half mile from the OP, like you could see it. It was yeah, close enough to where it. you could walk yeah. to it. Well, yeah. Well, you didn't really want to walk there because there, there was always the threat of ID. So we, what we would do is we'd usually take like a like a armored Humvee or something like that out. But the British they do things <laughs> differently. And I remember like when we first went out there, I was actually on the back of a quad, and. Those guys are just wild. Yeah, they they uh they have a, a lot of fun. I really love those dudes. And uh, yeah, I was sitting on the back of this thing and this guy's just tearing down this ro- road. I'm like, oh my God, man, if we hit something, that's it. We're dust, you know, but oh well, you know. So when we left Bagram, which was the main uh, base, it was the main camp, and that was in the north, we got on these... Uh, what was I forget that what the name of the helo is, but it's one the Marines have. It's like the seahorse, right? It's this big gray bird, you know. And it's got, the ramp is huge, and it's got a 50 cal that hangs out the back, the back of it and all that. So your platoon gets onto that, and then they carry you to the main fob in Helmand. And uh, we were that's where we were we're going to replace the Welsh Guard, and. Uh, take over you know their ao and so i remember like as we're flying up uh the gunner out the back of the bird starts shooting the 50 cal and you know 
we thought we were taking contact or something, right? But what I came up, so like, you know, your adrenaline just like spikes. And we're all kind of staring at each other like, oh man, like, uh, you know, I hope they don't shoot this thing down. Well, come to find out that wasn't the case at all. He's just testing the gun to make sure it works. <laughs> right. Right. It's like, dude, you should have said something, you know? So just bla blasting this thing, you know? But yeah, that's all it was. But I just remember like, you know, that's when that, that's when like the surreal part goes away and then that's when it starts kind of sinking in like okay yeah this is real like this this is why i'm here you know and i remember like i was like the first guy on the ramp so obviously your mind goes to like all the world war ii films like saving private ryan and all that kind of stuff like man dude like i'm not even gonna get to fight like i'm gonna get smoked as soon as i set foot 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 off the bird you know it's like man this sucks because you know, you don't want to be the first guy, you know what I mean? So, and then I had a buddy of mine, his name was Bo, and he was a machine gunner. And I look over at him and he's rubbing it like this massive belt of uh, rounds, you know? And he just, he, he, he was a crazy dude. I, I love the guy. And he smiles at me, he says, don't, don't worry, bro. I'm like, all right, you know, if he's behind me, you know, it's all good. And all those guys were like that. I mean, all those guys were great. They're awesome, awesome dudes. I love them to death. When we landed, we got told, you know, we might take uh, contact, you know, which meaning like, you you know, the Taliban might shoot at you as you're getting off the bird. So I'm jitting off the ramp and then my gunny comes in, like he lays his stiff arm in my chest and he just points to the fob. I'm like, okay. So we go in there and the, all the Brits are in there and uh, they got like a swimming pool set up they're drinking beer they're diving off the top of the post into the pool so it was this weird dynamic of like one second you think like you're about to die right and then the other it's like these guys are drink drinking beer and diving in a pool that they made it's just it was just very strange so yeah a lot of ups and downs we settled in actually it was that same day was when we first took contact too uh i was like taking my pack off and sending it down by my cot and I heard uh you know this man shout Allah Akbar and the next thing you know you just hear this it was a he shot an RPG at the fob and you see like this little football thing like fly over the base and it lands in the back of the compound and blows up and you know I was just like oh man like all already you know so yeah so it went from like getting on the bird thinking you're about to die to getting in the base and seeing the, the the swimming pool and the beer and starting to calm down and then it went back to okay I'm, I'm about to die again i feel like that would make it more surreal for me because you have this dichotomy of adrenaline spikes and real danger and then you're also simultaneously seeing people having a good time and you know swimming and drinking a beer yeah. i feel like that would make me more disoriented yeah i mean it, it, I think, it, you know, it does at first, but then after a while you get used to it. I mean, it actually just, it's just part of your daily deal, you know? Right. So, I mean, you have no choice, right? Right, right. Yeah. Can you describe the first time you actually went into OP Rock? Yeah, I remember, let's see, I did like a couple of like initial like combat patrols. And then they basically just picked a bunch of guys to go to the OP and you'd rotate out every three weeks. They just chose me and a, and a handful of guys. While Damien was at OP Rock for only three weeks, C was there for nearly 60 days. 
But first, he had to get there. Next, you will hear C describe how he got to OP Rock. We were just in this kind of staging area um, for one day being told, like, hey, pack up all your gear, put on, uh, carry enough ammo and water and food to sustain you for a couple weeks, um, which at the time was probably weighed more than most of us did. It was about 160 pounds. Uh, and then get on these helicopters and we're going to fly you down there. And that was it. Um, actually setting foot in our area of operations uh, is real. We all expected to uh, land in contact because uh, we were told we were going to the Taliban stronghold, expect to get shot at uh, while you're landing. And if I remember correctly, we did get shot at on the ride over and as we were landing, but not when we were actually on the ground. We uh, landed in what had previously been a cornfield, uh, greeted by a bunch of bearded British guys in shorts and t-shirts who had the most nonchalant attitude uh, I've ever seen out of someone in a combat zone. When we landed, it was right outside OP Rock or right down the road from OP Rock, uh, but we were uh, greeted by the Queens Walsh Guard. I'd never been out of the country at the time until I got to Afghanistan. Honestly, it looked kind of like where I grew up. I grew up in West Michigan, uh, lots of farmland, corn everywhere. Um, and if you stand in, a corn, and stand in one cornfield, any other cornfield in the world, um, so it was it was different. It looked like home. It did not feel like home though. Stepping through a time machine would probably be a pretty good um, descriptor. It's it is a surreal experience. And we landed, we took all our stuff inside where the, the Welsh Guard were, um, started setting it up, and within that first two hours that setup period, uh, local Taliban fighters or whatever you want to call them, um, started uh, attacking the patrol base we were at. Um, so it, as soon as we were there, it was like, all right, get on the walls start returning fire things like that so yeah that it was a very quick um like turnaround from like oh this is this is strange this is interesting to oh shit like yeah we're here for a job and it's actually happening so my understanding is that you were located at an fob in helmand is that correct that's correct okay and then you could see op rock from your fob is that correct yep yeah so the fob we were at uh was right outside of a small village of probably 200 people um, there was about a kilometer and a half, two kilometers outside. Um, the FOB had one main road on its west side that ran north-south. On the south side, there was a path that ran a kilometer and a half to the village uh, where it intersected the other main road in the area, also running north-south. And at that intersection uh, was OP Rock, which was a 20 to 30 meter tall pressed dirt structure that had originally been an outpost on the Silk Road for Alexander the Great. From the top of it, you could see two or three other outposts five to 10 kilometers away that were just kind of still sitting there poking out of the otherwise flat environment. You had cornfields, you had poppy fields. There were fields with marijuana plants the size of pine trees. Pomegranate was a big, a big staple crop there as well as watermelon. Everybody remembers the poppies because they were in this like drab environment. They're just these beautiful, bright pink flowers. It's so crazy because I actually, this is this is like jogging a memory of mine that I forgot about. I had a friend, one of my friends when I first moved to LA, um, he had a brother that was a Marine that was actually like on the cover of a magazine with his dog because he had a bomb sniffing dog. And so me just being like an insensitive idiot, like 19 year old was just like, oh, wow. So you've like been to war? Like, what was it actually like? And like, like now I would never fucking do that to a Marine because I know that that comes with so much trauma and that they probably don't want to fucking talk about that. And if they did, they'll tell me about it. But he he was cool. And he told me he was like, you know, 
we, he was at a lookout post and he was talking about how you're just surrounded by poppy because there's they just everyone makes opium there and he, one of the things he said too is he i was like oh what was like the scariest thing for you and it was just such a fucking i would never ask this now obviously but he was like well one day we had like intel that at a bazaar nearby there was gonna be um a suicide bomber that had a vest on and he was gonna come up and hug one of us and it was gonna detonate and he's like so my job was just to walk around this bazaar looking at all these different civilians who are all dressed in like clothes where you can't really see if they have a vest on underneath and just wondering which one of them is going to try to come up and hug me or one of my men and like detonate it and he's like eventually we found the person and um you know we were able to stop whatever plan they had from going on but he was like that is like a level of fear that like stuck stuck with me like I just have vivid imagery I can remember like every footstep that I took through that bazaar like I can remember all of the food and all of the gifts and things that were like you know for sale because his his adrenaline was just pumping and he was so alert but yeah that's that's crazy but so yeah my my point being that this is this isn't just like these people who are telling you these stories have like a unique point of view or something interesting to say about this. Like this is a common occurrence that like seems like every Marine or most of them or a lot of them have had like a similar experience. There. Yeah, definitely. I agree. And this episode kind of reminds me of our Vietnam War episode as well, where we talked about some of the horrors of war and then how that seems to often lead into paranormal occurrences. And there is no shortage of paranormal occurrences in today's story. And our main paranormal story for this episode, as all of our listeners know by reading the title, is the story of OP Rock, which we are currently getting some exposition on thanks to the information that I gathered from Matt and C and Damien. But before we get into the main event for this episode, I want to first get our toes a little wet with a paranormal experience that B had at Tapa Gurgaon, which you may remember she was telling us about at the beginning of this episode, where as soon as she stepped off the helicopter, she could just smell the stench of death and stepping on the ground there was like moon dust. So that is where we are picking up from before we get into our story about OP Rock. So without further ado, here is B describing a paranormal experience that she had in Afghanistan. And so one of my duties there at uh, Tapa Gurgaon was we would listen to the radios at night because we had local Afghan forces who would provide our security. So our job was to listen to the radios to make sure Nothing's going on, no other units need our help. So one night, I wanna say around like one in the morning was my duty. So I'm sitting there, I'm listening to the radio, nothing unusual. Someone came and relieved me. So I'm like, you know what, before I go back to bed, I'm gonna go to the bathroom. And our bathroom was located halfway down the hill on the road that led up to the top of it. And it was like this concrete building with just like, it was like an outhouse made of concrete with like very shabby doors. So I go down there start going to the bathroom and all of a sudden I start hearing someone like walking up the hill and being a, you know, port observer is my job to like be very aware of what's going on around me. And, um, I'm sitting there listening. I'm like, all right, that doesn't sound like one of the local Afghan forces. Cause there's clearly someone wearing like combat equipment. You could hear like the jingling of like the, 
the straps and like you could hear like the heavy footfalls of boots and i'm like who's up at this hour like everyone's supposed to be asleep so i like prop the door open just a little bit and i see this person walking up the hill like 20 feet from me and i can clearly make out that they have an ak-47 i'm like all the americans on this outpost we all use m4s so i'm like okay that's weird so i like look a little harder and they have a helmet on that's nothing like the american helmets and everyone in has seen like what Russian equipment looks like. And it's very clearly someone in like Russian equipment. And I'm like, what's going on? <laughs> this is interesting. And luckily for me, it was like a full moon out that night. So I was actually able to get like a very clear view of this person. And I'm like, wow, all right. I finish up what I'm doing. I grab my rifle that's with me. And I like go running up the hill. Cause I'm like, something's about to go down. There's someone like walking up the hill towards my guys. Everyone's asleep. I gotta like alert everyone. And I'm running up the hill and I'm like noticing there's actually like footprints in the moon dust. And I get to the top of the hill and the footprints just stop. And there's no one around, like it's completely deserted. And I'm like, what the hell? There's no one here. I'm all alone. The footprints just die. I'm like I'm not seeing things. I clearly can see footprints in this moon dust. So I, like, I walk back over to operations center and I like knock on the door and the dude who relieved me from guard duty was like, hey, what's up? I thought you went to bed. I'm like, did you see anyone come up here? Did, like anyone walk by, anyone come in? He's like, no, like you're the only other person like awake right now that I know of. Everyone's like asleep. Cool. I'm like, can I bomb a cigarette? Cause I just need to like come down a little bit. <laughs> so I like really keyed up. I, I smoke a cigarette and joke with the guy. I finally go back to my little like room and I try to fall asleep. And the next morning, um, we're all prepping for our next mission. We're like eating a quick breakfast. And the guy who relieved me starts like razzing me a little bit about it. He's like, you know, you were like seeing stuff, you were sleepwalking or something. And I'm like, yeah, totally. I probably fell asleep on like the toilet or something. And one of these special forces guys, like this, this special forces guy who had been in the army longer than I had been alive at that point is like, oh, you're talking about the resident ghost. I'm like, what? He's like, yeah, there's a Russian ghost that wanders around the hill at night. I'm like, seriously? He's like, yeah, I've actually like, drawn my pistol on him before because I thought someone was breaking into the compound. <laughs> I'm like, what? He's like, yeah, everyone's met him already. Okay, that would have been nice to like know when we got here. <laughs> when I think of the military, I think of very like matter of fact, this is what the situation is. This is what you're doing. I almost feel like emotions aren't part of it, or at least maybe they try not to make it part of it. So was the paranormal something that just was never addressed unless someone was like, hey, I saw this thing. And then it's just very matter of fact, like, yeah, of course. It's funny because people put off the military, like it's like we said, this very serious cut and dry thing, but people are very emotional in it. In it. And everyone has like some level of spirituality and superstition. And there's so many like traditions that are just found, founded on like superstition that it, it's, it, it's a very prevalent part of the culture that's not really talked about directly. Really interesting. I, I was a paratrooper, so everyone, like, just, you're always staring death in the face because it's just something that's so prevalent being in, like, a combat role as well. There's not a single person I know who doesn't have, like, some level of, like, spirituality. Like, obviously, there's a lot of religious people in the military, but other than that, like, I don't think I've met a single person who doesn't have some paranormal story and it usually like after you get a few beers in them is usually when it starts coming out and people start talking but 
for the most part, everyone just kind of like shrugs it off and it's like, all right, whatever. Like, let's not talk about it. We got bigger fish to fry. I kind of love that, though, because it's it's refreshing, I guess, as a paranormal podcaster to see that there are, you know, facets of life that maybe it's not well known to the public, but where the paranormal is just accepted rather than someone trying to look for a logical explanation. It's just like, well, that's what I saw. And it's not a big deal in a sense. Yeah, you got other things to worry about. You got <laughs> so much going on. There's so much stimulus in your environment. You're just, you're constantly looking out for things to begin with. Like you're always hyper aware and hyper vigilant. So Sometimes you're not sure if it's just like sleep deprivation or stress or did something paranormal actually happen or was that actually like a person? It, it's there's so much to parse through that it's like, well, it's not directly posing a threat to me. I'm just not even going to like bother caring about it until like years down the road when I'm finally, you know, chilling at home. And I'm like, hey, this interesting thing happened to me one time. There's so much evidence of like the Russians having been there that it's like you can never tell who it was specifically so it's just probably was a russian that was buried in that area or went missing in the area something like that so we just it was the russian soldier that's all we really identified him as and are there any other paranormal stories from your time in afghanistan that you would want to share so i only have one other one this one comes from the last outpost i was at i referenced it earlier um there was that outpost we were building which was like the american one and then there was a russian fighting position and it was like the ancient ruins like off in the distance and when we were there we would all pull guard duty up and we built this central tower and we had these uh, thermal optics that you can like see for miles in every direction thermals and um one night I was up there, I'm doing my Ford Observer thing. I'm like getting a terrain sketch drawn up, trying to get known points. I'm looking around and I notice people like thermals, what should be people off in the distance in those ruins I told you about. And I'm like, there's someone over there and it's the middle of the night. What are people doing over there? So I'm like watching them intently. And I'm like seeing them going back and forth between the ruins and this and that. And I'm like, what What are they doing? And I, the next person actually came up and relieved me for guard. And I'm pointing it out to them. They're looking through the binos at it. And they're like, oh, yeah, yeah, I see something moving over there. Yeah. So I'm like, it's probably just some locals or something. So the next day, like, I asked to go out there because I want to actually get, like, a, a good coordinate to that position so that if there ever is anyone over there, maybe they're going like, to plan to attack us or something from there. I have the exact location, so I can just call in the aircraft. Hey, like, this is the coordinates. Go there. And they're like, yeah, sure. We walk out there. I, I pull my GPS out. I'm getting the thing. I'm looking around, and I'm not noticing any feet prints. I'm not noticing any, like, clear signs that someone was there the night before or setting up, like, an ambush or anything like that. So I'm like, all right, whatever. I'm just tucking that in the back of my mind. Later on that day, we went on a patrol to like the local village. It's just like right next door. And I have our Terp ask a few of the locals like, hey, was anyone like messing around over in those ruins last night or anything? Like I saw people moving around. I just want to like make sure it's not something I should be aware of. And they're like, no one goes over there. Those ruins are haunted. The locals know to stay the hell out of there. <laughs> I'm like, oh yeah? They're like, yeah. They like, they say like, you go over there and you mess around with them. You're gonna like be cursed. I'm like, okay, well, good to know now. <laughs> Who was haunting those ruins? Did they ever elaborate? No, just, just, they were ancient. They were just been there forever. So just we're told to stay away from it. If you had to pick the top five 
most haunted countries. Do you think you would rank Afghanistan in that top five? Oh, for sure. Just just yeah. for the fact that like the history it has, like the layers of history, the, the different empires and kingdoms and everything that have gone through there. I mean, Alexander the Great marched his army through there and that's going way, way back to like the first empires to ever exist. And since then it's just been one after another after another. During my research, I realized that Ghost sightings of fallen Soviet soldiers of the 80s were not unusual. And this is what ultimately led me to the story of O.P. Rock. So without further ado, here we go. There were hundreds of observation posts or OPs located throughout Afghanistan. And due to their purpose of early detection of enemies, posts were often situated at higher elevations. O.P. Rock was no different. In an article for the New York Times written by Thomas Gibbons Neff and Timur Shah, the authors write, quote, OP Rock seemed the perfect vantage point for the Marines, a 30-foot-high dirt pile overlooking the low-lying poppy fields of Helmand Province. While its location may have been ideal for its intended purpose, OP Rock was far from luxurious. The dirt pile featured no beds or cots and was really nothing more than a series of winding, shallow trenches surrounded by razor wire, HESCO barriers, and a few open-air ghillie tent roofs for meager protection from the elements. In a special on OP Rock for the Sci-Fi Network's hit show Paranormal Witness, an anonymous narrator opens up upon the scene of a band of eight American Marines pulling up to OP Rock for the first time. As the men descend from their military vehicle at what appears to be the base of a rocky desert hill, the following words flash across the screen. In June 2009, U.S. and NATO forces prepare for a major offensive against the Taliban. Eight Marines are on a mission to replace British soldiers at a remote fortification. The Marines will be stationed at OP Rock for 60 days. The squad is led by Sergeant Green. Corporal Jacob Lena is the second in command. The Marines in this particular story, who were stationed at OP Rock in the summer of 2009, are named Lance Corporal Damian Zolik, Corporal Jacob Lena, Lance Corporal Adam Wilson, Sergeant Josh Brown, Lance Corporal Austin Hoyt, Sergeant Green, Lance Corporal Smith, Diggs, and Parker. You may notice that this list I've just read consists of nine names instead of eight. And that is because one of these Marines, Zolik, would have his time on OP Rock cut short. But more on that later. The story, as told by the Sci-Fi Network, made use of pseudonyms instead of the real names of certain soldiers. In order to protect the identity of those men involved in this story, I will not be revealing the true identities of any one person. First, we will look at the story as told by the Sci-Fi Network. Next, we will have C and Damien offer their perspective. Finally, we will hear from Matt, who was part of the group of Marines to demilitarize OP Rock, meaning that he disassembled the structure. As you will notice, all of these stories contain conflicting events, and this is best explained by something that C told me, which is that ultimately, everyone's memory is going to be different, and what's true to him might not be true for someone else. Probably a little disclaimer, like, these are memories of 14 years ago, um, yeah. from very stressful times. Uh, I don't know anybody that came out of Afghanistan or 
uh, Iraq for that matter, um, that didn't have some sort of traumatic experience happen to him. And mm -hmm. trauma affects memory in profound ways. Um, healing from trauma affects memory in profound ways. So like these are, I completely forgot that the interview was even out there. I mean, how do I feel now? I, I still have a healthy skepticism for everything that I experienced, but at the same time, I find myself struggling to, uh, I guess, rationalize it. Regardless of whether or not what I experienced was uh, a physical, like a physical apparition or something like that, like it is still something that I experienced or that we all experienced. Um, so like, the experience itself, regardless of if it was stress or whatever, um, I just kind of makes it real um, to begin with. So that's just kind of how it's for me. Like this is something that happened. Um, that's just kind of how I view like my entire time in the military. It was something that I did, something that happened. Uh, can't change anything about it now. And really going back and like questioning it doesn't do you a lot of good. The experience, the experience happened regardless of how you want to qualify or quantify it. I guess everyone experiences things differently. And to say that like what somebody else experienced there was different from me than their experience would be, I guess, naive of me to think that like my point of view is the only one that was legitimate. I ask that the listener keep these facts in mind as we delve into this story. Day one. Our story begins on day one. One of the British soldiers stationed at OP Rock descends from the fortification to greet the American Marines and show them around what would become their new home for the next two months or so. Lookout shifts at this OP were typically done in 60-day cycles, with a new small group of Marines being shifted from their regular routine and shuttled out to OP Rock, whether by foot or by vehicle, to stand guard in case of a Taliban ambush. This was Marine Adam Wilson's first assignment, and he was nervously taking it all in. Damien Zolik described the OP as follows, quote, It looked like a giant rock, just, you know, it was pretty much just a knoll. It was definitely a weird place and had a very strange vibe. Second-in-command Jacob Lena remarked, The British soldiers looked pretty rough. They looked a little razzled, a little fried. You could tell that they'd been there for a long time and were ready to go home, Wilson agreed. As we said earlier, there are no beds or cots at OP Rock, but the Marines grew accustomed to sleeping in the dirt. Despite the lack of creature comforts and lack of creatures in general, the men soon learned that OP Rock came with a mascot, a female mutt named Ugly Betty. Matt, who was not stationed at OP Rock during the same time frame as these eight soldiers, got to know Ugly Betty during his time on lookout duty. Afghanistan is the land of dogs. Like there are a lot of dogs, big dogs, scary dogs, but there was one dog specifically that I believe you're referring to, Ugly Betty. Ugly Betty was an Afghan dog, to be clear. She was not a military dog, not with the Marines or anything. She was tougher than anybody I knew because she had been there longer than we had. And she had must have raised three or four litters up to that point because Ugly Betty didn't do her justice because she was a patchwork of colors. She was gangly, you know, bigger joints. She was obviously probably in the last third of her life, she was older. She was a wreck, but she was she was brave. Ugly Betty was uh, sort of a mascot because she would travel between, she would go out to the open country then come back to a military base, an American base or whatever, because she knew she would get good treatment there. It seemed like she was cool that way. She would always come back. I first met her at Hassanabad, which was the main base. And everyone said, oh, it's Ugly Betty, it's Ugly Betty. And okay, cool, Ugly Betty. But then when I went up to OP Rock, Oh, there she is. I hadn't seen her for a week. She was up here. 
The British, whose job it was to acclimate the Americans relieving them of duty, hurriedly showed the men around, but curiously didn't seem keen to talk much. The Marines chalked this up to fatigue of sleeping on the ground and the stress of keeping watch for the enemy. Right before leaving, the British tell the Americans they have one last piece of advice for them. Quote, if you pick anything up, make sure you put it back where you found it. The statement is so puzzling that before the Americans can decipher its meaning, the British soldiers have already gone. The eight Marines are now alone on OP Rock. Later that night, Jacob Lena is on the isolated machine gun post with his binoculars keeping watch. Sergeant Green, the leader of the group, was required to check on the soldiers on duty from time to time. During this routine, Green would come up to the lookout post, approaching each Marine from behind, and do a very distinctive double tap on each soldier's left shoulder before asking them if everything was quiet. On this evening, Green comes up, double taps Lena on the shoulder, and asks if he needs anything. Lena responds that he's fine and that it's okay if Green wants to go to bed. No sooner had Green left Lena alone than the radio next to him suddenly crackled to life. He hears something coming from it, but he can't quite make it out. Quote, It was a crackling, gurgling noise that kept fading in and out. I immediately called the main base to see if they had tried to call me, and they called back saying, We have not sent or received any traffic at this time. It was just very unusual. The radio then goes silent. A few minutes later, it comes to life again. Lena turns up the volume on his radio to see if he can make out what the voices are saying through the transmission. It doesn't seem like English, and he assumes the batteries must have gone bad or must almost be dead. He grabs a fresh battery and puts it in. Day 2 Observation posts are normally pretty safe because you can see for miles around, says Zolik. This was different, though. It felt somewhat exposed. Anytime your head is poking out, there's a chance a sniper could get you. Lena says that there were trenches in place, but they weren't very deep. The British had been here for a while, and we couldn't figure out why they had not dug in deeper. We immediately knew that we needed to dig deeper and wider trenches. Uh-oh. No, because there's going to be a, a, a fallen comrade there who's haunted. Don't disturb the grave. Right? So, basically, as the men are going through their eight-hour shifts and they're changing hands and one person's going to sleep, the next person comes up for their shift, they're walking around, they're exploring their new surroundings that the British really didn't take the time to talk to them about very much, and they realize that these trenches that are set up for them are not ideal because even the <laughs> shortest of the Marines that are on duty, their head is sticking up from the trench while they're just normally right. walking around. And that's not ideal because a sniper- It's not safe. Yeah, a sniper that could be up in one of these mountains or even down in one of these valleys can easily pick them off while they're just walking to and from doing shift change. And that's not ideal. And you also don't wanna be like stooped over 24 hours a day for 60 days. Like that's not gonna be ideal mm -hmm. either. So they decide, okay, we know at some point we're gonna need to start widening and deepening these trenches. And they slate that activity for the following day. So the following day, they begin their project of widening and deepening the trenches for their safety. After about an hour or so of digging, Lena's spade clangs against something metallic in the dirt. 
It's some kind of engineering stake. Lena brushes it off and sees Russian lettering carved into the stake. I knew it. He remembers that the Russians had been in this area of Afghanistan in the 1980s and thinks he must have come across some old artifacts. He even thinks it's interesting and continues to dig, feeling more like an anthropologist or an archaeologist than a soldier. I'm shaking my head in disapproval right now. But think of how, like, okay, you're bored, you're on these eight-hour shifts, nothing's really happening. Right. You're, you're simultaneously bored and, like, also constantly on high alert. So anything that's... Right, like, you're trying to distract yourself. So this is... Oh, what a better opportunity than to do some archaeology right now. Like, I always wanted to be a paleontologist slash Indiana Jones, and now is my chance. Who would have thunk? being on this lookout post in Afghanistan. Exactly. Like, they they have to dig yeah. these trenches. It's hard work, right? Manual labor is hard for anyone who's ever done it. It's not fun. But now it's kind of fun because as with each, like, spadeful of dirt that you're removing from this trench, you get to see possibly something new. The ground is hard, like digging through rocks. Wilson shoves his spade into the wall of the trench with all his might, and the wall promptly and unexpectedly crumbles to the ground, revealing an indentation or crevice. He calls over Smith, who starts digging through the crevice with his hands. Smith begins to pull out several broken pieces of ceramic pots, cups, and various dishes. Interested, Zolik comes over to look at what Wilson and Smith are digging through. They can tell that there's something else deeper in the crevice, but are having trouble getting to it. Smith pulls out a long human bone, a femur bone. Smith starts playing around with the bone and joking, trying to make light of what is clearly a creepy situation, but none of the men feel like joining in with him. The bone makes everyone uneasy. They put the bone back before moving on to continue digging in other areas. But soon, it becomes apparent that they cannot dig anywhere without disturbing more and more pieces of human skulls and skeletons. Lena said, quote, They were everywhere. Now it became very clear why the British did not dig deeper. There were bodies buried underneath here. We were trapped on top of a graveyard. A few days later, it was Hoyt's 20th birthday. Being the most junior Marine on OP Rock, Hoyt was the most inexperienced. Quote, being up there alone with nothing to do just mentally drains you. It's an eerie silence, he says. As Hoyt is on lookout on his birthday, he suddenly hears the radio turn on with static. And he waits expectantly for a transmission to come through from whoever is trying to call him. While he waits for words to replace the static, he suddenly gets the unnerving feeling that someone is watching him. It sends chills through his entire body. The radio is still crackling as he nervously looks around his lookout post. No one is there. It's dark. It's just him. Lena jerks awake suddenly to the sound of a blood-curdling scream echoing through the night. Thinking someone has been grabbed by the Taliban and is being dragged away through the night, he springs into action. Oh my god. Grabbing his gear and his weapon, he slinks in a crouched position toward the wall, where he peers over and looks through his weapon's thermal scope out into the vast, empty desert. Wilson, who has also been awoken by the ear-piercing scream, joins him. After repeatedly and tensely scanning their surroundings, the men turn to each other, confused. 
They both had heard a very distinct human scream, but no one was there. Hoyt was still safely at his post, though he also had heard the scream. As the men are confused, looking around trying to figure out where the scream had come from, Ugly Betty starts to bark. Hoyt looks out through his binoculars into the night. There's nothing. He continues to pan left and right, up and down. Then, something darts out of his peripheral vision in the distance. A dark Mm -hmm. shadow flitting so fast that Hoyt isn't sure what it is, but he knows it is just outside their perimeter razor wire. All three men ready their guns and walk in a line with their flashlights out toward the entrance of the razor wire. They wait, but no one comes. They look through their binoculars and can't find the shadow again. Lena gets out his thermal optics, something which would clearly show any living thing in the area since it registers a heat signature. But there's nothing. They shrug their shoulders, go back to their posts, and eventually try to act like nothing happened. Hoyt assumes that his mind is just playing tricks on him since they're so fatigued, and he goes back to sleep. Oh my god, I'm sorry, but this is like every single Indiana Jones movie that has ever existed. This is real. some supernatural shit going on, and then there's some people with like guns and stuff who are like, Hey, what's going on over there? Like, huh. And no, you can't fight ghosts with guns. Sorry. Is I know that's the worst part, right? And so at this point, they're not really sure what they've seen, but they've heard like, hey, the way that the Taliban works is if you're not shot down by a sniper, they will literally come and snatch you and grab you. And you could be the next person on one of those like, you know, shakily filmed videos that gets uploaded to right. Live Leak, where you have like a where bag like over your head. You. Yeah. And they like force you to say something um, like denounce America or, you know, right. whatever before beheading you on camera. And then like now your family is going to have to see that this is public online. So this is like yeah. something that they're obviously, first of all, nobody wants to die. No matter how, no matter which way that you can be killed, none of it's good, right? Nobody wants to die before their right. time is up. But to imagine being dragged off by a group of people and then filmed and beheaded, maybe tortured, forced to say something, forced to live out your last moments in just pure terror with a bag over your head. Like that is something that is so frightening. Like I am like kind of having a panic attack as I think about it, right? Like that would be horrifying. I want you to continue with the story, but I just have to trauma dump the story really quick. It's only like 30 seconds. Do it. I saw on Reddit one of these Taliban filmed execution videos. I can't remember how I saw it, but it was so well done. Like it was shot in like 4K and it had panning shots and it had drone shots and shit that I didn't even think it was. I thought it was like a Hollywood movie. I didn't think that what I was watching was an actual like terrorist execution video. And they had all of these um all of these dudes who they were executing and they were all on their knees there was like a lot of them there was probably like i don't know like six of them or more and they would just go they they would like um it was a dude would get behind the guy he's on his knees with his hands like shackled behind him and force him onto his stomach and then use his hand to pick his head up with his hair and take what looks like the most dull like pocket knife and literally behead this person with like this dull tiny knife and they're just like bleeding out like their throat is cut and there's blood everywhere and the other guys that are next in line are just standing there watching all this happen to all of these people before them and i just remember watching it and being like 
I just had so many like confused emotions because I felt so intensely like empathetic for those people because what I was watching wasn't like a shakily filmed video. It was super clear and it was, I mean, you could see all of the emotion and everything going through these people's minds. And I was just thinking like, fuck man, like fuck these terrorists, honestly. <laughs> yeah. And that's the thing. Like war, war is not a pretty, um, you know, little thing. And that's why at the beginning I said, look, the reality is war has really never brought about peace. Sorry. That's the reality because yeah. cycles repeat themselves. New regimes come into power. New empires fall. Empires rise. It's a never ending cycle. And so no matter which way you cut it, it's ugly. But I know exactly yeah. what you're talking about with these videos. Like it's I feel like especially for non-military people, we are so far removed that we can't even imagine what that terror is like. You know, I'm sure I didn't ask this of any of the Marines, so maybe I'm wrong, but I am sure that they're hearing the worst of the worst stories. And I'm sure those stories right. also take on a life of their own and get worse as they are retold. So the fear yeah. that you would have on a lookout, seeing a shadow person out of the corner of your eye running across mm -hmm. your scope at night would be right. like, the most terror I can even imagine because you're going to be assuming worst case scenario. So when right, they're... Like best case scenario, it's a ghost. Right, yeah. Worst case scenario, it's someone coming to kidnap you and fucking behead you. Yes. And so, and when you're on an observation post, like lookout job duty, you're not thinking best case scenario, right? Your job is worst case scenario. So as they're walking around, they're trying to figure out what is the deal with this shadow thing that they saw because they're not thinking, oh, it's a ghost or it's a trick of the light they have to assume the worst right but as morning begins to come around and nothing has happened they're just left really confused and doubting themselves and Hoyt who is like I said the most junior of these marines I'm sure kind of feels silly because he's like oh I'm like the one who is on this lookout and you know maybe I'm wrong maybe I'm too fatigued maybe I'm too inexperienced mm -hmm. So Right. You don't want to be the one person who's everyone's like, uh, he's losing his mind. He can't handle the pressures of war because you've like let your platoon or whatever you want to call it down. Yes. So you're like trying to keep your shit together and do the best job you can to keep you, everyone around you safe. And so the, you don't want to like cry wolf. Yes. You know? And that's something that the soldiers in this story even like remark upon in their interview with the sci-fi network. They're like, well, I didn't want to be the one to say something like I didn't want to be the one to like admit that they were going crazy. So we just continued on business as usual. But because it right. was such a weird thing, Lena, who's second in command, decides to take one of his fellow soldiers, Lance Corporal Parker, down um, into the like entrance of the razor wire this time during the day because they had previously gone down at night just to see if they can find footsteps or something. So okay. Lena and Parker travel down um, and they're feeling kind of exposed because they're exiting the safety of this fortification. They are exiting the safety of their trenches, of their HESCO barriers. And they don't want to spend a lot of time outside of this area because it's very dangerous as we've just discussed. Right. So they're walking around and they're carefully looking for footprints or footsteps anywhere in the direction where Hoyt had seen the shadowy figure the night before. But there is no indication of anything at all. Not even tracks from an animal, not tracks from a snake, nothing. Not tracks from Ugly Betty, no human footsteps, nothing at all. And they cannot figure out like what was the shadow that, that was seen the night before. 
Because even if it was, even if it was an animal, let's say, or a bird or something, you would, you should be able to find evidence. Right. So now we fast forward a couple of days. The group is still on their um, 24 hour, eight hour shifts of watch duty. And now we get to nighttime again. And Lance Corporal Damien Zolik is on night watch. Zolik says that it would get so hot at night that it was very uncomfortable. And he would often take his helmet off, even though you're not supposed to, because you're supposed to keep your helmet on in case um, a sniper is in the area. But, you know, he's super hot. He's sweaty. It's nighttime. He's miserable. He's in his full gear. He's got his weapons that are super heavy. And he ends up taking off his helmet for a minute. Now, Smith, who was making the rounds that night, greets him and asks Zolik how he's doing and kind of chastises him and is like, hey, man, you got to put your helmet back on before before I leave. Like, this is unsafe. You got to do it. I know it's uncomfortable, but you have to do it. So Zolik's kind of, you know, fatigued and irritated, but he's like, all right, whatever, you're right. So he puts his helmet back on and continues for hours in this really uncomfortable, super hot, super stuffy, um, and tense situation where he's on night night watch. As the hours pass, he suddenly hears a crackling come over the radio and feels an impossibly cold chill of wind move across him. So everything around him is stagnant and hot. It's yes. arid, desert. He's in his full gear, like we just said. His helmet's back on. Where could this cold wind could have come from? It, There's like yes. nowhere for it to come from. Yes, and it's a distinct cold chill, like kind of moving across the back of his head and neck. <laughs> Quote, there was no breeze. There was no reason why I would feel cold all of the sudden. And then I could feel breath on the side of my face. Oh my God. And I could hear something whisper in my ear. I spun around, but nothing was there. The whisper, it sounded like Russian. Assuming he's just tired, hot, and fatigued, Zolik tries to put this whispering voice and hot breath and cold air out of his mind and tries to continue his night watch shift. He then begins to hear a slow, crunching noise that sounds like footsteps. But these footsteps are not on the ground. They are coming from directly above his head. At this point, Zolik thinks, there is definitely somebody walking above me. Thinking it might be Smith playing a practical joke, he runs around really quickly, hoping to catch him in the act. He leaves his post, looks on top of the post, but no one is there, and the footsteps stop. Zolik is now genuinely spooked. He turns on his thermal scope to scan the area, but looking around, he still sees nothing. Then, as he continues to scan with his thermal scope around the, his lookout area, a figure pops up in front of his scope. Quote, It looked like a man with his fists balled, ready to fight. And I was ready to shoot, but I just needed to make sure it wasn't one of my boys first. And when I looked back through the scope, suddenly... The figure was gone. Just gone, Zolik said. He feels the chill go down his spine again and hears the whispers coming over the radio louder this time, clearly speaking in Russian. Hoyt comes to relieve Zolik on post during this time, and Zolik tells him about what he has just seen and heard. But the radio mysteriously goes silent right as Hoyt walks into the post. 
Hoyt takes what Zolik tells him with a grain of salt, assuming that his friend is just tired. Hoyt continues night watch duty with no incidents to report. The next morning, Zolik tells everyone what he had seen and heard, and that he is convinced that the place is haunted. Zolik talks about how he ends up deciding to put in for a transfer. So here's someone trying to figure out, are there fucking Russian soldiers, like... Uh, around our camp? Are there uh, people who are speaking Russian trying to scare us? Like, what is going on? Like, are all these bones... I'm sure they probably thought, like, oh, is this like a psyop? Like, was all this yes. stuff planted here to scare us? To make us feel like, oh, look what happened to these people who are doing the same thing you did now? Like, is this like the Vietnam War episode where, you know, they're trying to just freak these soldiers out and get them off of their game so that they lose it. And right. I'm sure all of these questions were things that were going through everyone's mind on the job. But then they're also like, you know, you feel like something weird is going on. And usually when something weird is going on is when you die at war. So you got to be figuring out like, okay, do we get rid of this haunted guy who's seeing this haunted stuff? Or do we uh, take it seriously and try to figure out what to do next? I don't know. Yeah, it's a tough spot to be in. And then what also makes the issue with the radio interesting is that in talking to some of the Marines, they were explaining to me that radios in the military are way different than like your normal walkie talkie, which I guess everyone's probably like, well, obviously, but I never had really thought about it. And these radios are like machines, you know, and they are your your only lifeline out of wherever you're stationed in. There might be like a satellite phone for emergencies, but your radio is what you use on a day-to-day -day basis to maintain communication with your base. And so any news that needs to come through that's important is going to come through your radio. And these signals are encrypted. So somebody with right. like a walkie-talkie or another radio isn't going to just be able to tap into whatever station or channel you're using to talk to your base. So the fact that there's some weird Russian whispers coming through, like it can't just be explained away as like signals being crossed. Is there radio being used as a spirit box? I, I know. I don't know. A few days after Zolik left OP Rock, Corporal Jacob Lena is keeping watch when at around 1.30 a.m., Ugly Betty starts barking at something. Looking through his binoculars, Lena sees a figure standing perfectly still and motionless in the distance in the middle of the poppy field. His first thought is that it must be a Taliban scout. Switching to his heat vision goggles to get a better look, he sees nothing. No animals, no people, no heat signature at all out in the area where he had seen the figure through his scope. The surroundings beyond Ugly Betty are blue and cold. Thinking he must have made a mistake, he switches back to his binoculars. The figure is now 100 feet closer to him, an impossible distance to have covered in a span of mere seconds. Frightened, he switches back to his heat goggles, but nothing. Still nothing is showing up with a heat signature. No living person or animal except for Ugly Betty appears in his field of vision. As he's puzzling over this difference, he feels Sergeant Green give him the signature double tap on his shoulder. Relieved to no longer be alone with his barking dog, Lena turns to greet Green, but no one is there. He knows he felt the double tap. It was deliberate and firm against his left shoulder. Lena uneasily continues to switch between his night vision goggles and his heat vision goggles, but now he can no longer see any figure at all. 
When daybreak comes, Jacob decides to say nothing to his fellow soldiers. He didn't want to end up ridiculed or ostracized or relocated, but privately, Jacob Lena hopes that someone else will experience the same thing. He worries he might be losing it or going crazy. Maybe he's experiencing combat fatigue. That was a jump scare in real life. Like he was looking through his, or night vision, night vision goggles rather, and sees a figure and then switches to the binoculars and it's a hundred feet closer. I'm sorry, but that is paranormal activity. Yes. The movie right there. Well, and also like, okay, imagine these are- And the tap on the shoulder, just no. No. That is what we call a tap out situation. Yeah. I feel a tap on my shoulder from a ghost and I am now done with war. I'm going to forfeit my Jeep. Uh, you keep the helmet. Uh, give up all of my medals. I, you know what? My feet are too flat for this. I'm blind in one eye. And suddenly um, I realized that I have some sort of uh, terminal condition that cannot be supported in the military. So yes. I'm going to have to leave. Sorry. Yeah, these men are way stronger than I would be because at the first sight of a shadow figure, I would be like, peace out. I can't do, at the first, you know what? I back up. At the first crackling of a Russian voice coming over my radio after finding Russian bones, I think I would be out. So these guys are way more determined and brave than I would be in the situation. It would also just real talk be a shitty situation if you're with a bunch of people who don't believe you and like this is really happening to you, right? So like you're like it's haunted, there's ghosts, whatever. And you can't just be like hey guys, this place is fucking haunted. And everyone's like, I know, listen to this crazy shit that happened. Oh my God. Because that would make it so much better. Because yeah. then you would feel like you're with everyone instead of like, oh my God, this super traumatic shit is happening to me right now. And I can't express it. Yeah. And that's why Lena says, you know, like, I'm not going to say anything out loud, but privately, I'm really hoping that other people are seeing this shit and that at some point we're going to be able to talk about it because this is absolutely insane. And like you said, it's better if you can at least talk about it with someone like to have to keep it to yourself and wonder if you're losing it and like maintain composure like that is all its own haunting in and of itself. And also, like like we talked about, this is the only hill for like miles around that they're on. That's why they chose it for their observation post. There are mountains in the distance that they have to worry about snipers, right? But for the most part, like Afghanistan is composed of these mountains and then big fertile valleys. So they are completely surrounded by these perfectly flat valleys. And Matt, as we learned earlier in one of the sound bites I played, says that not every observation post even had to be elevated in Afghanistan, depending on where you were, because some of the places were so flat for so many miles that you could just set up your little base on flat land and you could see for miles around. Yeah. So the fact that there's nothing except for poppy fields for miles and miles and miles, and then all of a sudden a random figure is just standing there in the middle of the poppy field, like that is... Yeah, a jump scare. That is terrifying. That is impossible. <laughs> so the days continue to pass. As we remember, they have to be out here for 60 days. They are have now crossed, you know, the 30-day, um, you know, halfway point. They're really eager for this shit to be done. It's not fun. It's uncomfortable and now possibly haunted. Hoyt is on night watch with Lance Corporal Smith one evening. All the other soldiers are asleep. Smith is located in a different lookout post about 20 meters away from Hoyt. So both of these guys are on night watch just at different posts. Hoyt begins hearing footsteps behind him. Heavy boots crunching desert rock underneath. 
the sound drawing closer and closer with each crunch. Thinking Sergeant Green is coming to check on him, Hoyt turns around. No one is there. He rationalizes it in his mind, assuming it's just loose gravel falling from somewhere. But then, ugly Betty starts to growl. Teeth bared, hair standing on end, growling for her life. Hoyt decides to scan with his thermal scope on his gun. He sees no one registering a heat signature besides ugly Betty and the sleeping bodies of his fellow Marines. Hoyt calls out to Smith and asks if he sees anything from his post. Smith answers that he does not. Hoyt decides it must be nothing and returns to his post to keep watch. He starts to hear the crunching noise behind him again. Suddenly, he hears it. A heavy, sighing exhale blowing down onto his neck. The breath is cold, like icy fingers running across the nape of his neck. Hoyt again turns around, and again there is no one behind him. Quote, I couldn't see anything, Hoyt said. And it was like my eyes were just lying to me because every other sense in my body was saying, no, there is something there. In this moment, Hoyt has come to the realization that Zolik was right. They must not be alone. A few days later, Lance Corporal Adam Wilson is on night watch duty. Wilson never believed in ghosts. As he's continuing his night watch duties, an icy chill out of nowhere passes over his body. The Afghan nights are normally arid and hot, especially while wearing pounds of military fatigues and body armor. But in that moment, Wilson feels downright cold. As he's musing over this change in temperature, a static crackles over his radio, and a weird, whispering, wailing noise seems to be coming from all around him. Wilson looks around his entire post, but no one is there. But the whispers begin to grow louder and more distinct. He's not imagining it. He can begin to make out some of the sounds and identifies the language being whispered around him as clearly being Russian. The sound now becomes more focused, and Wilson felt the voice was now whispering directly into his ear. It felt like the lips of a person were touching his ear as they whispered. He jerked his head to the side and looked toward the voice, but still no one is there. The voice has now made its way inside his head, screaming in Russian. Wilson oh is terrified. God. I, I mean, I just can't even imagine what this guy is thinking because he's like, okay, I'm hearing Russian. Is this coming from a radio? No, it's not coming from a radio. It seems like it's just coming from around me. Is there someone here? And then just like the terrifying trying to figure out whether you're hearing a Russian voice in your head or outside of your head is just terrifying. It's like, is this a voice in my head or is someone out there? Because either way, shit's fucking bad. <laughs> yes, yes. And also when we have an internal dialogue, like a voice in your head speaking to you, it's yourself or like some subconscious, right? Like very rarely are you, or if ever, I have never personally heard someone else's voice inside my head. So if you're someone like me and that's never happened to you before and your internal monologue is just like an unconscious, um, you know, string of thoughts, then, and all of a sudden you just have someone screaming in Russian in your head, like drowning out your internal monologue, like that is absolutely horrifying. But Wilson has to continue night watch 
because nobody else is experiencing this around him. So he's on his eight hour night watch waiting for daybreak to come, just having these voices, these whispers and these screams all around him and in some cases inside him. So when daybreak comes, Wilson is exhausted. His nerves are shot. As his fellow Marines awake from their slumber and huddle for breakfast at their lonely outpost, Hoyt could sense Wilson's uneasiness. Are you okay? Hoyt asks. Wilson reluctantly begins to explain what had happened to him during the night. Screaming, desperate rough whispers, crackling static, a voice in Russian filling his ears, then his head, the feeling of lips against his ear. Quietly, Hoyt says, I heard it too. Then, one by one, all of the men began admitting to the strange voices and strange cold figures that they had begun seeing on Nightwatch. Quote, This is not something that we can just write off as being heat stroke or exhaustion, Hoyt says. It was too many things happening to all of us, too many times. You can't shoot it, you can't stab it, you can't blow it up. You just have to accept the fact that these things are happening and we still need to do our job. Lena remarked, It just became common knowledge. At this point, you have to look to the supernatural. In fact, the only person out of the eight Marines on duty who seemed to be unaffected by the strange happenings was Corporal Smith. Smith would often make jokes about these strange happenings, saying, quote, The sun is frying your brain, boys. The next day, Lance Corporal Diggs calls over Jacob Lena, telling him that something is wrong with the walkie-talkie. Diggs informs him that he had switched out the batteries a few times now, but the walkie still wasn't working right. It kept going dead within 10 minutes of a fresh pair of batteries being inserted, and it made no sense. Lena grabs the last good battery they have and puts it into the radio. Then he leaves the post. When Lena is no more than a few feet away, he hears Diggs running up behind him, yelling urgently, Corporal Lena, the radio's dead, the system's dead. Their only means of communication had now been completely severed. They are completely and utterly on their own. That same night, Wilson is on duty again. He's nervous about his only means of communication being cut off, but the radio being dead also means there's no chance there's going to be any creepy static tonight. As he looks out from his post through his binoculars keeping watch, the green light from the dead radio suddenly switches on, and the airwaves begin crackling again. It's impossible, he thinks. But as he slowly turns his head, the acrid green glow washes over his face. For a moment, all is quiet. Wilson's shallow breathing over the crackling static is the only noise in his post. Then, out of nowhere, machine gun fire. Machine gun fire? Mm-hmm. Wilson, in his interview with Sci-Fi Network, remarks, Holy hell, I'm just thinking we're all about to die right now. For his part, Lena was thinking, we'd been shot at before, but this, this was close. All the sleeping Marines are jolted awake from their slumber by the sounds of heavy machine gun fire and artillery explosions booming around them. Wilson is yelling from his post, shouting for the men to man their stations. This is a life or death situation. Wilson's ears are even ringing from the sound of the machine gun fire ricocheting around him. He appears to be writhing in pain. Then, just as quickly as it had begun, silence falls. Eerie silence, so abrupt that it makes Hoyt's eyes water. He touches Wilson's gun. 
The gun is cold. It hadn't been fired at all that night. The loud explosions they had just heard moments ago had to have been from an advancing Taliban force, but why had they stopped? Are you okay? Hoyt asks Wilson through the thick silence. Then, the unmistakable whistling of an RPG whooshes over them. I thought that was it. I thought I was done for, Lena said. But the whooshing noise never connected with anything. There was no RPG explosion, and the men were still alive. Confused, they look at each other, looking around their outpost. Then, the gunfire starts again, louder and more aggressive than ever. The men rush to their feet from where they had taken cover in Wilson's station and immediately begin trying to determine where they were taking fire from. They checked every single trench, but they could not find any enemies in their trenches. But the gunfire noises won't stop, and they are so loud that it has to be coming from somewhere nearby. It now sounds so close that the men describe the noise as being someone firing a gun mere inches from their ears. I'm gonna die, Lena says. On this godforsaken rock out in the middle of Afghanistan, I'm going to die. Then, again, it is completely silent, not a peep from around the men. They realize no one is there. They feel helpless. Smith gets mad and throws off his helmet. Finally, the radio begins working again. The main base contacts them, letting them know that they are allowed to leave OP Rock in the morning. Their 60 days are done. Eventually, Lena says in his interview with the Sci-Fi Network, I found out the true history of OP Rock. Back when the Russians first invaded, the Russians killed all the Mujahideen up there and took it over for themselves. Later, the Taliban rolled in force in the middle of the night. They snuck up to the top of OP Rock and they beheaded all the Russian soldiers there. Finally, when the Marines rolled through the area, they buried a number of Taliban underground. This little piece of rock was one giant tomb. Lena goes on to say, As silly as it might sound, we started to wonder. Did we unleash something when we first started digging up those bones? Some kind of curse? I thought we were safe from whatever was there when we relocated, that we would be able to move on with our lives. But we didn't realize what was to come. Lena goes on to explain, Lance Corporal Smith was inexplicably killed on a secure base by a rogue bullet. Quote, it made no sense, you know. You have a better chance of being struck by lightning than what happened to him, Lena says. Lance Corporal Diggs later died in an IED blast. And Sergeant Green suffered horrific facial injuries from a different IED blast. Wilson said it felt like some final destination thing. Lance Corporal Parker was later killed in action while on patrol. Hoyt, in his interview with Sci-Fi Network, was quoted as saying, That was our only family, and now there's only three of us left. Hmm. And that is the story of the haunting of O.P. Rock. Wow, that's a really well-told, great story, Ali. I really, you know, this is a good one. I think that's a great season premiere. Everyone can agree with me. 
Um, yeah, I, I, I know that the skeptics are just going to have a field day with this one because there's probably so many theories like, oh, well, it could have just been they were going crazy. It could have been there's water contamination. It could have been they were cut off from the outside world and were experiencing psychosis. It could have been that the poppy had somehow they were hallucinating because of the opium content. Um, it could have been that there was a psyop and perhaps there were uh, this stuff was planted and everything was all just part of a ruse. It could have been a, elaborate pranks. It could have been, you know, it could have been a million things. But I'm here to tell you that what we definitely know it was was haunted for sure. Yes, absolutely. And first of all, I just want to say thank you so much, Natalia, for saying that you enjoyed the episode because on a personal level, I think this may have been the hardest episode for me. Um, on a personal and a professional level, I think this was the most challenging topic that I've covered. And I think that's because, so when I was interviewing people for this story, I feel like everybody had at least one fact or one story that their opinions differed on, right? And I don't think that's unusual. I think that the the thing that C said at the beginning of the story of OP Rock, where he's like, let me do a little disclaimer. I feel like that was very wisely said. Everybody's opinion is going to be different. And it was not unusual for me to interview one person who's like, oh, this person said something to me. And then you go talk to that person and that person's like, I never said that. You know what I mean? And I know I'm being very vague right now, but it's because I spoke to a couple of people who didn't want their names or their voices used. And then I spoke to some people who wanted, who didn't care, who said, yeah, give them my first and last name and use my voice, like Zolik. Um, and then there were some people that were like, you know what? Uh, you can use my voice, but please don't use my name. So everybody's testimony was equally important to me. And I didn't want to choose one person's story over another. So I hope as these guys are listening back, if, if any of you guys that I interviewed are listening to this back, I hope that you know that I did my very best to honor everybody's story. And for our haunties out there that are listening, you guys may want to know that we are starting a Patreon. So if you go to patreon.com forward slash let's get haunted, eventually I will have the full interviews from each individual person. Um, when I say full interview, I mean an interview with only stuff edited out that the person, that the people wanted edited out, if that makes sense. So if somebody didn't want their name, I took it out. If somebody told me something and then later was like, you know what, that's too personal, I would take it out. So I'm going to have those up there so that everyone can listen who wants to listen and hear what people had to say in their own words. But now I would like to take a few moments to insert some audio of the different interviews I had. Now we're going to hear from C. Originally, the build out of OP Rock from what we had been told, and this is all third, fourth hand um, information, was that when special forces had come in through that area years before, they had set up there, they had taken it from the Taliban, they had bombed it and cleared it and started digging the trench system that was up there. Then the British came in, uh, built it up a little more um, when we got there, really, it was just uh, a couple sandbag um, embankments um, where you could get cover, a small cave that had, I don't know who dug that, uh, but there really wasn't a lot to it. So when we got there and we took it over from the Welsh, the first thing that we were tasked with doing was improving defenses. Uh, so that's when we started digging trenches, building sandbag walls so you could move around 
the entire perimeter of the, of the place without being seen from the ground. Uh, so as far as sleeping quarters went, I mean, it was just kind of sleep wherever you could. There was some cami netting that we used as shade in the center of it, where there was a kind of a depression uh, where we had built some benches with uh, random wood we could find. Uh, there was that little like dugout uh, root cellar or cave thing that was probably only about 15 feet deep or 10 feet deep and about 10 feet wide. And some guys slept in there, but it was musty and smelly and just slept outside under the stars mostly. Uh, as far as furniture went, uh, we built some like chairs out of old pallets, cots. When we got there, the cots were too tall. Uh, you could still, because we hadn't built up sandbag walls enough, cots would sit at an area where you were kind of exposed. You could use them, but a lot of guys, or most of us just used the sleeping pads that we had and slept on the ground. There was a, a small dugout area where we could rest, um, but no, there wasn't anything that defined. So had you heard anything about OP Rock prior to being on watch there? Uh, so when I was told that I was going to OP Rock, we kind of heard from the, uh, the Welsh guard that like just the tongue-in-cheek like oh it's haunted watch out ghosts um dead russians dead taliban things like that uh you're gonna hear voices and rattling chains stuff like that um, um i don't know i didn't, really didn't take it seriously um i had never experienced anything like odd or paranormal or strange in my life prior to that so is it typically like a pretty small group of people that would be at these ops yeah so it, it's generally a pretty small uh group there uh for us the it was rotating between six and eight people i know some of the guys would go down for a couple days at a time when we relieved the welsh that were there they only had four people up there and did you ever experience anything paranormal in your time either in Afghanistan as a whole or on OP Rock in particular? I mean, Afghanistan as a whole, oh yeah. Um, so one of the things that I remember most vividly about both of my deployments uh, were just you'd get these weird lights just floating in the sky um, and everybody kind of brush it off like, oh, that's that's an illumination mission. That's artillery firing giant white phosphorus on parachutes way away that are gonna go away. And then they wouldn't, you'd see anywhere from a handful, like three or four, to a couple dozen of the giant bright lights on the horizon in the sky and they'd just be stationary for 20, 30 times these small groups for up to an hour. Um, so that was always kind of strange and everybody just kind of like joked about like, oh, it's aliens. But like, realistically, um, with all the soft disclosure we're seeing for UAP and stuff like that coming out of the DOD right now, we, we saw what we saw. Like, there were strange things that nobody could explain that we were seeing on a routine basis. Um, as far as OP Rock, OP Rock, in the first couple of days or weeks I was there, really didn't seem all that strange. Um, as we were, like, I, I was probably just nerves at the time, like I'm 19 years old, I've never done anything like this before. I'm on a, a hill in the middle of Afghanistan with seven other guys or six other guys or however many at the time. And at the longer we were there, as we started to like entrench and uh, build up the fortifications, we started to dig up uh, bones. Um, so like phalanges, uh, there, there was a femur found, um, teeth, things like that. Um, and we'd been told we'd find stuff like that. Uh, but once we started to actually find like, human remains and stuff, um, it started to get strange. You'd get these weird feelings of like being watched. Uh, you'd hear uh, wire rattling when there was no wind, but the dog would start going crazy. Ugly Betty would start going crazy and just growling at random parts of uh, the OP in the middle of the night. Guys talking about hearing voices. A couple times where we'd swear that you'd hear uh, Russian coming over the radios and stuff like that, which sounds ridiculous because military encryption is crazy but um but yeah just a bunch of things that couldn't be explained like that um, all of a sudden getting super cold and feeling like somebody's watching you uh there was one occurrence where i don't remember who was on post but all of a sudden 
a bunch of sandbags just like came crashing down on them and they were positioned in such a way that they were originally supposed to fall outward like you stack them with like the base uh like a wide base and getting skinnier at the top so that if like they get hit with a, a rocket or something like that it doesn't come back and collapse on you um but there was one night where all of a sudden like just somebody's screaming and there were just tons of sandbags like on top of them like just this immense force had pushed it all over like weird things like that so in paranormal witness the way that they phrase it is that the the welsh didn't really tell you guys much um before leaving is that the case for you or did they actually tell you like hey there's some weird stuff up here prior to you discovering um, bones so they told us that a, a little bit there was a what's called a hesco barrier which is like this giant chicken wire um like three by three by three square that you fill with dirt to make a wall um so there was a hesco barrier that was placed in like a really random part they said hey there's don't go over there don't dig there that's a marker for a body that had been up here or something like that but no they never really told us that to, what to expect or to expect anything really strange uh, than like when i had first got there and everybody just kind of joked about ghosts and dead russians and dead taliban and stuff i i remember when lena and uh wilson got up in the middle of the night like i remember many times where betty would be barking at nothing uh where we'd be looking for anything that was out there um the the feeling of like somebody watching is a is a constant um you're up there you're out you're always on edge especially in the middle of the night and before where you're being told people are trying to kill you or people are, are going to try to kill you um so it is a it's a, a very surreal and taxing experience uh, in general um as far as like the radio goes that that area had this like weird um phenomenon of just completely messing with radios like uh, a military radio in that area on my second deployment we'd be able to use for 10 15 kilometers no problem contacting like uh, uh our battalion or anything like that based on how their antennas were the power sources or the power signal power that we could push um but with the area around op rock uh we would have trouble getting in touch with the patrol base that was a kilometer and a half away if a patrol of marines went around the village at the base of op rock um they would lose radio contact and they were still within two kilometers of a large retransmission antenna or of us um so yeah their electronics had a, a weird habit of not working especially radios uh, right around there there were times where we'd be up there what it would it would like out of the corner dry look like there's somebody standing there i vividly remember that a couple times would be like you'd like just something in the shadow um like and like out right at the edge of your periphery and it would you'd think you'd see somebody and turn and there's nothing there so yeah it was it was strange you'd get you'd get that feeling a lot or that uh or like somebody standing right behind you and nobody's there stuff like that again op rock i would say was kind of a a strange situation because it was so because of like the things you'd find and the things you'd hear and like just how concentrated those experiences were whereas in other parts of afghanistan uh when i was in uh uh nawa and trek nawa um and like the areas outside marja um you'd still get some of the same thing like you'd think you'd saw somebody walking away or running or you'd hear a disembodied voice or like back in 2009 i don't think there was a term for it but now it's what you'd call like phantom phone syndrome uh where you'd like feel your phone vibrate even though none of us had cell phones all of a sudden like everybody's feeling their pocket at the same time thinking their phone went off um so like weird group experience like that was pretty common um i'd say that most of the veterans i've talked to all have some strange experience like that that they can't just explain away like everybody after the um after the paranormal witness uh thing came out i got 
so many messages on Facebook of other veterans. Like, I thought I was the only one who experienced this. I had things like this happen to me when I was in Afghanistan or when I was in Iraq. Um, and then when I was in college, I knew a bunch of other veterans who had deployed uh, throughout um, the global war on terror. And all of them have at least one or two stories of like something strange that they can't uh, explain. Now we're going to hear from Damien Zolik. Like once we got in and adjusted and unpacked and it showed us the post and showed us the ammo d- dump and showed us the uh, like, you know, where the rockets were and all the Marine stuff, right? Where a guy would keep his kit. That's when they started to t- tell us about like what they had dug up and that was the bodies. Cause OP rock was actually, uh, it was a Greek fort. It was a tower built by Alexander the Great when he was down there. Which now, because of erosion and you know all the wars and all that, it was just, it was like, it literally looked like a big rock. But there were certain parts you could go down in there and you could see the arrow slats where like the archers back in the day would shoot out from the, yeah, yeah. So yeah, talk about feeling old. You know, you really felt it there. Like it was like, yeah, very strange, very strange. But yeah. it, I wonder if it makes you feel almost small in a way. Like, look at this thing that was here before us, and now we're here, and it's kind of a shell of its former self. And that's exactly how we felt with small, you know? And it was cool, too, because it's like, you know, again, you want to be a boy, you want to go fight, you want to blow things up. Well, one, because you're reading his, history class about this guy that led his, you know, his his uh, men all the way into, you know, into per. Persia and everywhere else, you know, and you're like, okay, yeah, I want to be him. So then, you know, come to find out you're actually standing in something he built, you know, it's very, I mean, it was, yeah, it was surreal. It was, you know, he felt very small and, and very blessed, you know, in a weird way. And just like, you know, yeah, like we're here, you know, like we're doing it. So can you talk a little bit about what the Welsh guys told you about the bodies that they had dug up? Yeah, they said, uh, I forget his, forget his name. I wish I had, but dude, he was funny, man. Those guys are characters. He, you know, he was this big gnarly dude, like, you know, you know, tattoos all up and down him, you know, and, and, uh, there, there was two of them. There was him and then another guy named Dan. And I hope he's okay. Cause Dan was really, really cool. And, uh, he had been to that area i think the whole time he had been in well since the war began so like four times remember he had deployed a lot he'd been like to like to bosnia too and all that like he was he was a like a salty dude is what we call like like a salt dog like he's been around you know that's what that means you know and uh like he spoke the the language he actually knew a lot of the locals there and they knew him like yeah it's wild you know he lost a lot of friends there too so anything he had to say I really perked up when he talked you know because I was like yeah he definitely knows like you know but anyways so they told us and at first we thought it was a joke you know obviously but they said that they had dug like you know they told us what we were on it was basically like a massive graveyard come to find out and uh they dug up a bunch of bones trying to build the posts like build the towers you know and you know they said if you dig up anything make sure you bury them back because they were then they were talking about when you know they said they had guys that were like using the skulls as ashtrays and all you know and all that kind of stuff and drinking out of them and all that yeah it seems intense but again i mean your men at war you know that's really not 
it is to be honest that's not anything out of the ordinary i mean that's kind of pretty par for the course you know but anyway so he was saying like when they did that though you know then that's when they were started to experience these events like they had one guy that had like sleep paralysis real real bad and like even the guy so when you're on post you get relief well the guy never came so basically the guy on post is like what in the hell like where are you at so then the other relief went to check on him and when they shined his light he was wide, wide awake but couldn't move couldn't talk couldn't nothing looked scared and they said it took him it took both of them forever to like pretty much like shake him out of the the state he was in and he said yeah dude i was trying but he's like you know he just said he couldn't move couldn't talk and like i remember if i remember correctly they said he even saw something like holding him down but he couldn't really tell what it was and then there was another guy that was looking through his mvgs the night vision at night one time and saw like a stack of heads and he was like whoa you know like obviously that's really intense because there's not you know there's there's nothing there but he swears he saw it so at the time, we were actually the, skept the skeptics just a little bit. Me, I mean, I'm I'm a Christian, so I, you know, I was raised that way, and I always kind of believed in like the afterlife and the demonic and stuff like like that. So I believed it. I was like, oh man, this sucks. You know what I mean? Like, I got to worry about you know the Taliban and like IEDs and snakes and the heat, and now I got to deal with ghosts. Like, are you kidding me? Like, you know what I mean? It's like this just sucks, man. So I, you know, I I believed them, but then I also thought maybe they're just you know they're just exaggerating what they had seen because it, it was it sounded so unreal it, it sounded so unreal but dan told me he pulled me aside and was like no really make sure you bury the stuff back and i you know i did experience stuff and i was actually i think if i'm if i remember correctly i was the first one out of my my group to start experiencing those things and that was only like the first week into it being up up there and I remember like talking to them till I was blue in the face, but like, listen, y'all gotta get a Bible up here or something. You know what I mean? A priest, like we need, we need something up here and you know. And then uh my sergeant at the time, he was he was a good guy, bless his heart, you know. He was like, What do you want me to do? He's like, You want me to ra radio the the captain and tell him like he's not like what's he gonna say? Okay, yeah, we'll 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 run the plasma pack up. Yeah, you know I mean, like, you know what I mean? Like, yeah, like, you know, Ghostbusters. What I mean? like, right, yeah. right. You know what I mean? So it's, you know, what, what do you do? You know, what do you do? In the episode of Paranormal Witness that you guys were on, there are a lot of things that they said in that episode that then later people I've interviewed have said, well, that's yeah, not they, really how it they, works. Yeah, they, that was, you know, I don't know all what I can say because of copyright stuff. I will just say it like this. I learned a lot about the media. That was another thing too, is like, with that was it kind of it, it it's they, like to me they kind of made it like a little goofy too like because this was serious stuff i mean like like you know i mean when you're up there and like you like you just said all the stuff we had to deal with and then you throw something on top of that and like a big huge part of being a warrior is being prepared to die and being prepared for death and so you, it's hard for you to function when you're faced with something like that because at least with me i had a lot of theological thoughts floating around my head then i'm like oh man like am i damned like why is this being allowed to happen to me like i don't want you know i don't want this to go to hell like if things are if things are up if these things are up here i get smoked like how's that work you know what i mean like so you know you start rolling those thoughts around in your head and it's just like but eventually you know over, over time you just say a little prayer and kind of push them away and you know kind of just 
trust you're there for a purpose. Like, I think when I said the first event was I was on post and the radio came on and it was like real static and like crackly and all that. So I was like, okay, you know, that's normal. That is normal. That's nothing unusual about that. Thing was though, is I got real cold. Problem was, is this was during the summer still. So the nights were cool, yes, but not like, you know, not cold. This was cold. Like I could almost see my, the breath, like in the post, you know? And, uh, which instantly my mind went to, uh, oh, what's that movie? The Exorcist. You know, where they walk, walk in, it's freezing cold. And so I'm like, yeah, so that went in my head. I was like, oh shit, man, you gotta be kidding me. You know, like, and then, uh, then I heard like something whispering in my ear and it sounded like, I don't know if you know what like tongues is, but it's like, I don't know. It just sounds like this weird language of some short sort, you know, there was like Russian mixed in is what it sounded like some to me, you know? Yeah. That was the first night. That was it. That's all that, that's all that occurred, you know? So I went and told my sergeant about it. He's like, nah, he's like, look, he's like, dude, you're going to be all right. Like, you know, shake it off kind of thing we're just tired we're, we're thirsty we're bored blah 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 you know we're all rationalizing and I, you know me too I, I i did that as well because again like you have to function you know so you even start lying to yourself you, you, you know what i mean and then it was like a couple of nights after that i was sitting on post and i heard something walking above me and uh, oh well it backtracked so when i was telling all the guys like about what i'd seen and felt and like this is just like dude like this is a for real thing they were busting my balls a little little bit in the beginning right of course i mean you know we're a bunch of dudes up there and they and they hadn't experienced that to at this point yet i don't believe and uh so i was sitting in post and i heard uh something walking around on top of it so like the post is like it dug in kind of the rock so you have like sandbags uh, as a roof and then on the sides on top of the rock if that makes sense and so it sounded like somebody was on the sandbags on top of me and then so I uh, grabbed my gun I run out at first I thought you know it was them playing a joke and but then when I, I grabbed my gun and I ran out and I looked up there was nobody there and I went and I talked to the other posts like hey man were you just I was like, were you, did you hear that? And he's like, hear what? I was like, I was like, have you been there whole whole time? Or, you know, are you, what, what the hell, dude? Like, you know, I thought somebody was playing a joke. He's like, no. So then I went and go check my relief in his bag and he was sound asleep. And I was like, okay. So I was like, that's weird. So I get back on post and I, I sit there the next night. No, actually, let me backtrack. That ha- happened once. Then that had happened again. And then that's when I grabbed my gun. The first time I didn't grab it because I thought it was a friend, you know? So obviously you're not going to grab your ri- rifle if you think, you know, your boy, you know what I mean? So, but then it happened again. I don't want I don't want to say it was the next night, but it was pretty close. And then I had a, uh, what they call like a thermal scope on the rifle. Cause that's what we used at night to see, to be able to see in the, in the fields and stuff. You know, so mm-hmm. if they're trying to sneak up on you, their bodies will glow. You know, so your so your your body glows because of the heat. You know, so I had that on there, and I remember I looked through it because then my, my second thought it wasn't even ghosts. It was like, oh man, the the Taliban are coming in. Like they snuck up here is what I thought, because the way the step the steps sounded so loud and so real, like you could hear the rocks like sliding off of the sandbags. So it wasn't like something in my head. Like yeah, like you could physically hear it. You know what I mean? Yeah, when I looked through my thermals, there was like this big 
figure with his fist balled stand, standing there like in front of me. And I literally almost shot, but I didn't shoot because then, and all this is in like a matter of a second, you know what I mean? I didn't shoot because I thought, you know, wow, this, you know, the, it could be a friend of mine that, that is playing a joke. So I looked out of the site for a second, looked back into it, and the figure was gone. Did it register a heat signature? Were you using your thermal? Oh, yeah. No, that's what I'm saying. Yeah, it was. It, that's why I legitimately thought there was actual, like, physical, like, dude there. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. Like, I saw it in the site, in the scope. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And now we're going to hear from Matt Parks, who helped disassemble OP Rock. The one that we're talking about today is OP Rock, which I understand you were stationed there. Is that correct? Yes. It was it was notorious before even I got there. They said, oh, yeah, OP Rock. Like, OP Rock was very specific. Can you talk a little bit about when did you first realize that there was something not right or something different about OP Rock as compared to other places? The moral of the story was that there were a lot of bones. You would uh, just do something related to your job and then reach down and see or touch something. You're like, oh, human bone. Okay, cool. I'm going off of bro science with this things that other Marines told me about it, but they're like, okay, for, for the people here, burial tradition says that the highest places are better because they're closer to heaven. I don't know. I haven't looked that up, but that was the idea with the story I heard was that, okay, it's a high point. It's going to be a burial site. They didn't know that going into it. So they said, Hey, can you move this before leading up to the military early on in the military? You know, I went to church every week and I believe it sincerely. So you inevitably look at the world through a spiritual lens when you take it that seriously. And the biggest thing with anything supernatural, I was always told that anything that's malevolent, anything evil, it's like a dog on a chain and it can only hurt you if you get too close to it. So a lot of those, (laughs) a lot of those experiences, they're super intriguing, but it was, I was always very conscious about, okay, keep it at arm's distance, which I failed to do. In the end, you know, I, I got a little too close, I would say. After Afghanistan, I had so many questions <laughs> and no one had any good answers. One experience in particular, it was just like, okay, what is this? I have no idea. I believe in God, so I believe demons exist. And I believe demons can probably mess with people in any way they want and exploit their weaknesses and exploit their, their held opinions that they already have. So I think so much of what happens depends on the culture and is very specific to that culture. So I can't help thinking that something is paying enough attention to each culture to say, okay, that's their weak point. We can get them there. Let's just get into it then. My next question is, did you ever experience anything paranormal in your time stationed in Afghanistan? And maybe we can start with OP Rock and then move on to different areas if there are multiple. Yeah, OP Rock was is sort of a false confidence builder in a sense because everyone was having weird dreams, like super vivid, lucid dreams that were out of this world, like apparently. I didn't, uh, but every once in a while I'd wake up and hear some someone like very surprised at their own brain <laughs> explaining, you know, oh man, I was ripping people apart. I was turning into a werewolf. I could feel my muscles tearing and I was ripping their muscles. And it was, you know, it, it was unsettling for the dreamer who knows if it was just, okay, one person got attention for saying he had a crazy dream and everyone gathered around him. So now your brain wants to have an exciting dream. It could just be that. But it was actually later on 
when I was off OP Rock, I was in a new town. We were starting up a base. There's only 20 of us there. We were very outnumbered, I guess, very small group. And I was sleeping in my cot, about to sleep in my cot, laying awake, perfectly still. And I started thinking about OP Rock again. And I'm like, okay, maybe everyone else had bad experiences up there because they had a weak faith. And maybe I have a strong faith. And no sooner did I finish saying that, I couldn't move. And it wasn't just that I couldn't move. Like I was, I was awake, I could see everything around me. It was like when your foot's asleep, that tingling sensation times a hundred through my whole body. And I had never felt anything like that before. <laughs> so I was already freaking out, trying to scream out, didn't work. And then after that, that's when the more hallucinatory type stuff happened. My, my vision went to a deep red, like everything was through a filter. And uh, just like the movies, I uh, heard voices right next to my inner ear, I would say. And it was a different language, deep death metal voice. It was cliche. And that kind of struck me as odd. But I had heard of people having these experiences in the past. I had a friend whose dad said he had a similar experience. And as soon as you have paralysis, voices in your head, vision going and weird, body buzzing, then I'm just like, no, Jesus is my Lord. Jesus is my Lord. Jesus saved me. I was freaking out. And everything started to subside, you know, one element at a time. It sort of drew itself back the same way it came in. And then I thought I had been screaming the whole time, but I looked around, you know, this guy's still on his laptop. You know, this, that guy is still doing what he was doing. I hadn't moved the whole time. So I never fell asleep at that point. That's why it was weird. Usually you wake up from a dream, oh, it was a dream. But starting from being awake and then having that experience and then being awake again, I think that's why it was so unsettling. So many different sensory inputs at one time. And that was the thing that really made me question a lot of things. Brought up a lot of what's going on, if this can happen, what else can happen, that sort of thing. So that was the main experience that I did not have until Afghanistan. And I continued to have similar occurrences, let's see, for the next six years, I think, until I started making better choices in life and being less stressed and taking care of myself and it seemed to go away. But yeah, that was that was the start of a long, many years of having that happen every once in a while. Not to that extent, but still just as frightening and usually surrounded by negativity and stress. You know. Finally, to end the episode, Natalia, as you said, um, maybe like an hour ago now, I know this is like the longest episode ever, but you said, you know, there's a lot of different theories. There's a lot of different ideas that people probably have about this. And normally this is the point in the show where I would say theory number one, theory number two, theory number three. But since I have the benefit of talking to everybody that was involved in this story, I thought rather than speculate, let's go ahead and hear what they have to say now, 14 years later, looking back how they feel about the incident and what they ultimately think it boils down to for them. Do you have any personal opinion on why it is that war seems to attract these kinds of experiences? What is it about war that would make it interesting to whether it be ghosts or whether it be aliens? Like what is what causes it to be such a hot spot of paranormal activity? I would say 
what causes it to be such a hot spot of paranormal activity. Um, from what I experienced, like the, the localized things in OP Rock or like the larger uh, experiences of veterans as a whole, like seeing shadow people or seeing uh, the constant feeling of like somebody watching you, is that you've got a bunch of kids uh, who are as hopped up on adrenaline as they can be, who are completely stressed, who are going through these very traumatic experiences that either your brain is creating these things as like an outlet for it, or your brain is using that as rationalization for all these strange things that are happening to you. Personally, I so I definitely believe in the paranormal, but I also have uh, a healthy skepticism for it. Um, so I personally, I, I couldn't tell you. Ghosts or like uh, spectral entities could be there because um, of the problem that's occurring. I mean, that's one of the about in like haunted places all the time. Like this is these are that have been caused by trauma. Like this trauma has locked it to an area. Um, hauntings and stories, hauntings in jails, things like that, where where like this terrible human experience has created this scar on the memory of a place. Um, as far as like the, all the lights and stuff we'd see, um, I mean, like I said, unknown or UAPs is what the DOD is calling them now. Um, and they're just kind of like soft releasing, like, hey, here's a bunch of videos we have of fighter pilots that we've been suppressing for 30 years, seeing like crazy things happening in the sky. Um, but since like the dawn of the atomic age, that's always been where you'd see the most reports of uh, unknown aerial phenomenon or UFOs or whatever you want to call them would be um, in conflict or around nuclear power plants. So large area of conflict, crazy things happen. You know, Oki Rock was really the like seminal event of all of that for me. We all saw people, yeah, we all saw ghosts, yeah, we saw UFOs. There was this weird experience that we all had, so we would all uh, hear what we, I mean, none of us spoke Russian. Um, the, the extent of our understanding of Russian came from probably old war movies from the 80s. Um, but yeah, it would, it would just be this strange experience of like hearing voices that you didn't recognize on radios that nobody else was supposed to have speaking a language you didn't understand that we all kind of just perceived to be Russian. Yeah, do I personally think that there's a, a curse associated with it? Um, I think it was an easy way to explain it away. No, I don't hear uh, phantom Russians or like boots following me anymore uh, or anything like that. And I can't state definitively what it is. That's why it's weird. I think I mentioned in the comments with Mr. Bailey on that it's either a spiritual explanation for something scientific or vice versa. But now older, wiser, I say, why can't it be both? If something, if hypothetically, if we're in hypothetical land, if something could affect physical space from the spiritual space, there'd be some evidence of that that you could read, that you could pick up on with instruments, whatever. So I think it's a combination of both and I won't pretend to know the answer on that one. The darker chapters of my of my life were right after getting out of the military, as they are for many people. And you know, I've corresponded. We had a we had a ten year Afghanistan reunion with a lot of guys that I served with, all in the same unit. And now we're all in our thirties. So it was kind of interesting to look back at, hey, yeah, we were all eighteen and and stupid. Remember that? Yeah, it was great. But a lot of people had the same experience where you get out after four years, just four years of your life. And you basically try to drink yourself to death for whatever reason. You just, you're all pent up, you're angry, whatever, you're you're disenfranchised with the whole idea. So you drink excessively, you don't take care of yourself, you live fast, you spend all your money, that sort of thing. And so I was dealing with that, but that whole experience, like I said, got me curious about the dark side, the, the darkness of things. And, you know, it, it is almost cliche that, okay, I got into horror movies hardcore and I got into death metal listen to misfits all the time like it was it was it was corny basically but I honestly was trying to see how dark I could go how how far down that rabbit hole I could go and see where the bottom was and by the time it was done you know I was extremely depressed 
drinking a lot. The things that brought me joy weren't bringing me joy anymore. And I was just, something's got to give. Either I'm going to keep going this direction or I'll maybe do something positive, <laughs> maybe focus on happier things. And uh, all the experiences in the military, OP Rock included, sleep paralysis included, they kicked me into a, a bad coping mechanism spiral, I would call it, where you're just using the same old bad coping mechanism, but it brings you down. And it wasn't until I quit drinking in 2015 and started paying more attention to my Bible readings and being there for other people and all the best things of life, you know, then the sleep paralysis is less and less and less. And now maybe every once in a while I have it. So whatever it is, it seems to feed off the stress. It seems to feed off a negativity. So whether you call it the spiritual or a scientific explanation, it gets better if you just focus on the positive. But yeah, for a long time, I was going downhill. That was really beautifully put. I think that that's going to resonate with a lot of our listeners, that that message. I think you really put that very beautifully. And you said this earlier, too, that sometimes it doesn't really matter whether there's a scientific explanation or a spiritual explanation. Sometimes you just need to say, okay, that happened. It's real. It happened. And ultimately, it doesn't matter what the explanation was Mm -hmm. because it affects you the same. Yeah. Yep, and, and it goes back to what I was saying about, oh, people shooting at you to draw you into something. Mm-hmm. You know, if if you want someone to chase you, punch them in the face and steal their hat and run away. Like, <laughs> you, you have to do a small grievance and bait people in if you want to really do damage, it seems like. So it's a, it's a matter of, you know, the dog on the chain. Just make a different choice. Go the different direction. Stop getting closer. Stop getting closer. And, yeah, be positive. <laughs> Now I'm at a stage in life where I do want to reach out to people. So just like you did, get in touch with me through there and we'll see what happens. All right. That sounds good to me. And I'm going to follow you on there and I'm going to link in the show notes, your YouTube channel and your Instagram so that if people are interested, they can go ahead and click those links. Area. So you could see the enemy approaching from really far away. So that's why I think that's why it was so contested over, you know, throughout all the different campaigns there. And uh, later on, we had found out that the the Taliban had snuck up there one night and like basically cut the throats of all the Russians up there and decapitated them and all that. And that's one of the Welsh was telling me like, like, you know, looking back on that's probably like what the stack of heads was about or all that weird stuff, you know, was about was whatever like the the entities were were kind of like reenacting all this for us you know i do believe that like that area can be made sacred through bloodshed and through you know because you're a human you know i mean life 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 is a precious thing you know and so when there's a lot of that in an area i would i would definitely imagine that yeah there's some type of energy being built up or something for sure yeah no doubt the dialectic was was like you know i knew i knew had i knew like i had a job to do while i was there you know i I wanted to be there and so you know i and and again like what can you do like you're literally stuck you know i mean you're stuck you're not like there's there's no way out of that so i like me being a believer or whatever i felt like probably was a was a was like a 
was like a preventative thing. Like it didn't get real crazy until I left. So that's when the mock firefight went down. That's when a lot of, they started experiencing a lot more aggressive events than I did even when I was up there. And I believe that's because of who I was just, you know, as a believer, as a person, you know? So not saying like, I'm, you know, something holier than that or any of that. No, that's, that's actually the opposite. Like, you know, I, I, I was probably the worst one, but I, I kind of like, I knew who I had to lean on. And if you lean on him, then you're kind of in his hands. If, if, you know. On the episode, they talk about how after everybody left OP Rock, there were a lot of deaths. And if you don't want to talk about that, that's also fine. Or if you yeah. don't know, that's also fine. But I yeah. was just curious if they, if you had any corrections about that or if you had any um, beliefs around that, because the way that, that the paranormal witness made it sound is like, obviously you're, you're in war. So there right. is always the possibility of death, but right. it sounds like at least some of the last guys on OP Rock felt like perhaps some of the playing around with skulls or some of the pulling yeah, right. out may right. have contributed to that. They sort of almost felt like a little bit cursed afterwards for yeah. a time. Yeah. Well, I would say those questions were heavily leaned into by the producers. Because you're right. You're absolutely right. It's war, and that's what ha happens. I mean, one step left, one step right. It could be you or me. It doesn't. That's 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 a lot to God, you know. So no, I don't believe it had anything to do with that at all. It's just what happened, you know. But yeah, there was now. There, that being said, yes, there was a heavy chunk of those guys that were up there that did that did get hit. You know, I know my buddy Lance Corporal Smith. Uh, he was one. I had another buddy of mine that was telling me about it, and you know, he, he went he went out very. It was very r r random what happened to him. So what happened was is there was a, a firefight, and it was like several miles away, and a stray round from that firefight had landed in the. Went, came into the base from the air and it hit him in the, in the head, in the top of his head and killed him while he was on a cot. And my buddy was sitting right next to him when when it happened. They just said, yeah, it's completely on our... But again, do I think it had anything to do with um, you know, like a, like a, some curse on OP Rock or because, no, no, no. It's just combat and, you know, those kinds of things. Trust me, there's a lot of guys that should be dead, but they're they're not. Um, is there anything else that you wanted to add that I that I didn't get a chance to ask you? Or is there anything that you were kind of, uh, after the experience of Paranormal Witness, that you felt like you wish they had asked you? Not particularly. Like, you know, like I said, I mean, like, like me and you had talked about prior, like, you know, they, 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 they have a story to tell. You know, they got to make it entertaining and all that. So I get it, you know. It's just, to me, the only thing with that is, to me, it kind of discounts it. Whereas, like, obviously the people, like, I can tell you're very sincere about this. And you're very, like, like you know, you get a lot of guys from a lot of different backgrounds and schools of thought and religion and philosophies and all that. So when they experience the same thing at once, you can't just, you know, chop it up to, oh, it's the heat. Or, you know, you know, or get as silly with it is to put like zombies stomping around up there or whatever which like no one saw like that did not happen do you know what i mean i just hope all those guys are well you know do you have any feelings on like what you ultimately have settled on like what you felt like what you're leaning towards what you felt like it was yeah yeah to me it was it was uh you know 
so there's two types of warfare, right? Uh, I'm a Orthodox Christian, and so in our theology, we believe like what happens in the metaphysical realms affects the physical realms. So when men go to war or nations go to war, it's because there's a spiritual struggle, a spiritual bat, bat, battle going on in a, in a different plane, and that affects us. And I think what happened with me is I just we just got to see a little bit of that you know behind the veil like you know because you know oftentimes a, a, a lot of times those two worlds cross you know so the bible talks about it there's you know there's other books i mean the quran there's ancient ancient books that you know that kind of touch on this you know it's just not like a like a christian thing per se you know so that's what i believe yeah i mean <laughs> I have a haunted podcast, so I feel like I kind of know what the fuck I'm talking about, and that shit sounds haunted. I think we can all agree with that theory. I feel like we don't need to divulge too deeply into that, because obviously this shit is haunted. We've got ghosts. We've got uh, graves that are being desecrated. Like, come on, what else do you need? I'm kind of jumping ahead here, but this is just, I'm just going to say what everyone's thinking is that I feel like it's probably a mix of everything, right? Like you have real hauntings happening and then obviously word of mouth is going to get out kind of like the UB60, I can't even remember what what it was called, but we did an episode on um, a German submarine that was supposedly haunted. It was a U-boat. I think it was UB65. Yeah, um, sounds And funny. yeah, it kind of becomes I it becomes iconic, right? Like, so you have these people who are out here. There's fucking nothing to talk about. It's like 120 degrees in the middle of the day. You have periods that go on for super long with no entertainment, nothing to do other than just talk to each other or think about what people said days ago when you were allowed to talk to each other. And I feel like, you know, it probably gets moved around, like word of mouth. There's like some haunted, scary stuff. And so then it becomes even more disorienting because you're like, oh, am I just scared? Am I seeing things? Am I hearing things? Because I'm kind of going crazy from just having nothing else to do. Or is this really a haunting, which just, you know, raises the stakes of everything. Now your adrenaline's going even more. But I do think that this is all coming from actual, like deriving from actual real shit that happened. So yes, something real happened there is a real haunting that is going on here that has slowly influenced a urban legend that is now passed around and people draw from their experiences and can add to that urban legend but i don't think that's discounting that there is real paranormal activity here and i wish that the travel channel or ghostbusters or someone could like go to afghanistan and be part of the marines for a while and figure this shit out now i know that's probably super unlikely uh to happen and is probably illegal and would like really fuck up our intelligence and stuff like that because we're like trying to remain secret about what we're doing over there but you know this is this is the problem that i take up with skeptics is that they're like so obsessed with being right and like having an explanation for everything to prove that like they're super like you know more logical than everyone else and like feel validated because like i went to college and like i can read books i don't think it really matters it was haunted but i at the same time i do think it's haunted yeah does that make sense yeah i think it makes i sense. agree with him no it doesn't matter what whether it was haunted or not 
but I also think it was haunted. (laughs) (laughs) Well, thank you so much for coming on this haunted journey with me today, Natalia, with our season five premiere. The only final thoughts that I have is I just really want to tell everyone that they should definitely listen to NPR's podcast on the rise of the Taliban. All you have to do is search Through Line Afghanistan, and you'll see their Peabody award-winning podcast series on this complex issue. And I'm pointing that out because I didn't have time to get into the rise of power of the Taliban because this episode was already too long. But just know that um, this podcast looked at it from all different angles. It kind of explained like what led up to that rise in power, who is responsible directly and indirectly, what does that look like for people that currently live in Afghanistan, and got into kind of the complicated socio-political aspect of that, which I did not delve into because we are focusing on marine paranormal experiences in Afghanistan um, in today's episode. But I thought it was super interesting, and they interview some um, Afghan women who talk about what it was like going through the shift of like pre-Taliban to post-Taliban. And I don't know if people watch the news, but recently the Taliban decided that women are no longer allowed to go to school in Afghanistan. And there are a lot of different pretty like fucked up things that are happening that if you're interested in, I recommend NPR yeah, like- because they are way more educated on the subject than we we are because we are focusing on haunted shit. Um, mm-hmm. And then yeah. I also wanted to say that I had such a wonderful time talking to all of the men and women that I interviewed for this podcast episode. I, They don't need me to feel this way, but for some reason, I just feel very protective over them. And I know that the hauntees, you guys will be very, very respectful um, in the discussion on our Instagram. But more than anything, I just wanted to say thank you so much to everyone that I interviewed that allowed me to ask them stupid fucking questions because I don't know anything about the military. And I just I really feel like a connection to these people. And I hope that in our comments for this photo dump, I would just like to ask everyone to give a word of encouragement or say something nice or just say thank you to all of the men and women that I interviewed because they didn't have to come on the show and they did a wonderful, wonderful job filling us in. And B said something at the end of her interview that I just wanted to repeat here, which is reach out to your friends that are veterans. If you have a friend that's a veteran and you haven't talked to them in a while, reach out to them. Donate to organizations that help support vets that come back home with PTSD, with mental health issues, because it's really important. We need to take care of each other. Just reach out to everyone. And I'm going to put links in the show notes with some organizations and contact information for Matt specifically, because Matt said that he would like people to start reaching out. Um. Yeah, great episode. Really interesting. And um, this is definitely going to lead me on my own rabbit hole to go through and research some on this subject. Hopefully this episode... Um, you know, is is entertaining, right? Because that's one of the goals of our podcast. But also, hopefully it's educational. Hopefully you guys learned something new. And it definitely leaves a lot of food for thought uh, that I'm going to be thinking about for, I'm sure, years to come. Because there's episodes that we've done when we first started that I still think about. So I think this is going to be one of those for me where 
it's definitely never going to leave my mind. And if you guys would like to continue the conversation offline, you can visit at Let's Get Haunted on Instagram. Look at the photo dump for this episode. Go ahead and leave us a comment with what you were thinking during this show because it, nothing brings me greater joy than realizing that other people are interested in the same things that we are interested in. So I would really enjoy if you guys could leave your thoughts on our Instagram. And if you want to have a longer format conversation, our subreddit is the place to do that, r slash let's get haunted. Natalia, would you like to do our sign off today? Uh, BRB, going to go talk to my new friend, my fallen comrade, Russian ghost, who wears full combat gear and walks up the hill. And maybe he's going to draw his ghost gun. Bye. Bye.